What are we to make of the strikeout surge in Major League Baseball? I'll ask Todd Zola about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 30th. It's show number 22 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, Sirius XM, and all those podcasts discussing the strikeouts, exit velocities, the weekly tout table fantasy baseball discussions, and more. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including changes in the Arizona lineup, Jazz Chisholm, Jonathan Daza, Guillermo Heredia, and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including big roster changes in Toronto, mysterious COVID moves in Chicago and Houston, the Twins' bullpen follies, and more than that. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at Detroit corner infield prospect Spencer Torkelson. And in the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Washington right-handed pitcher Austin Vaugh. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're replacing Boons and Banes. We've got to talk some baseball. For many years, Baseball HQ Radio's expert interviews have ended with our experts picking out some Boons and Banes, players about whom they're optimistic or pessimistic. Before it was Boons and Banes, I think we called it Studs and Duds, and before that, some other rhymy little name that has since passed into antiquity. The thing with Boons and Banes was that they often weren't really actionable. Too often they were players who were already on rosters and probably too good to drop. So now that the season is underway, we're going to use the experts' former Boons and Banes time to get their picks for the coming weekend's fab runs. Starting with Todd Zola this week, I'll ask our experts for a disappointing player who should get better and is worth hanging on to, a player to talk up in your league because of a hot start and then sell high, a player to drop because it ain't going to get any better, and a hitter and a pitcher to target for the fab weekend. We're calling it Slumps, Pumps, Dumps and Jumps, and it starts at the end of part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola. Hope you like it and that it comes in handy. And speaking of our feature expert interview, it is the first inning of this Friday full edition, and that means part one of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, Sirius XM, lots of podcasts. Todd, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with a favorite guest of Baseball HQ Radio from Rotowire and Masters Ball and ESPN and every podcast in the book, most of the radio shows. It's Todd Zola. Todd, welcome back to my little show. Your little show, PD, isn't it? Perennially nominated for Podcast of the Year. Uh, I don't. I think perennially might be going a bit far because I stopped uh, submitting applications. But yeah, it. Ha- I, I had a had a little run of success there before I. Moved aside, yeah. <laughs> let let some others uh, have their turns. Uh, how's everything going with you? How's your how's your leagues going? How's your uh, 
commissioner airing going and all that stuff? It's uh, it's going well. The league's, you know, if we didn't have to count the first week or week and a half of the season, I'd be doing a lot better. But unfortunately, I haven't gotten any of my SWATs or commissioners to agree to those terms. Yeah. So we're continue. Yeah, we have to continue those stats. Yeah, I had a real slow start. It was. I mean, it shouldn't. I mean, there's more to life than fantasy, even though this is what we do. But man, I was for the first week of the season. I mean, it was it was affecting my mood. The oh, teams yeah. are so bad. Yeah. It really. It, fortunately, I don't have a wife and kids to irritate. But I mean, you know, it, it was affecting my mood. It really was. So, uh, I, fortunately, you know, I don't need to win, but I do need to do better than I was doing. And we picked it up a little bit, so it's all good. What was some of the problems in that early going? Where were the disasters? It was just I didn't ha- I didn't pick any of the hot. It wasn't even it wasn't so much injuries, but I just didn't have any of the players off to the ridiculous starts. But you know what? That's probably good because as we both know. Those players, water finds its level, and I don't know that you want to be winning early because that means you're off to a hard start. You just want to hang in there. If you finish fourth or fifth best every week of the season, you know what they call you at the end of the year? They call you champion. You know that's 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 all you really need to do, right? So you you hang in there, and then you get that hot streak that other people now have, and then if you if you're hanging in there, that hot streak will put you over the top. So that's what we're waiting for. My the the tout wars and labor aren't quite there yet, it, but you know we'll we'll hang in there. We'll get there. We'll see what happens. But we we'll keep grinding away, and I expect uh, I don't expect to finish in last place like it was looking early on. Were there any players you had in common across a lot of leagues who really uh, were terrible enough, maybe even to drop? Uh to drop not yet. Uh, I've been, I've been. Well, at this point, it's been more than Brad Keller. We can make a list of pitchers that have, uh, that have, uh, was, as we now call it, going, going, gombered. Uh, you know, a list of pitchers that are, that are. You know, imagine that some pitchers are inconsistent. They have a good outing, then a bad one. Imagine that, as if it's the first time that's ever happened. It's only been happening for 150 years, friends. Get used to it. Um, so is man, it's amazing. Baseball has been around that long at this point, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, talk about an injury. I, maybe I was too invested in Colton Wong and then Cesar Hernandez as the fallback and Cesar Hernandez did nothing, but Wong's coming on at this point. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know that I went overboard on any, I didn't go overboard anybody at the top, but I, I do have a lot of Mike minor. I do have a lot of like outside of the top hundred, 150, that seemed to be in common, and those players, I may, I may drop. We'll see, but um, I didn't, uh, I didn't go nuts on, I don't know, picking the same player up at the top. I've noticed you've mentioned on Twitter a couple of times about Corbin Burns. He of the many strikeouts and the zero walks. <laughs> And uh, I saw somebody say, and I don't think it was you, but I saw somebody say on Twitter, who would have believed that a guy could start the year with 40 strikeouts, no walks, and an 039 ERA and not be the Cy Young favorite? Yeah, well, that's just, you know, that, it's just crazy. I mean, I, th- what I did say on Twitter, I joked, every time I see a walk in a game, I go, ah, that's one more than Corbin Burns has. And, you know, we thought the other night he had, you know the way whenever the guy's a no-hitter, is everybody, shh, he's a no-hitter. So he had like a three-ball count the other night. So I wrote on Twitter, quiet, everybody. Burns has three balls, has a three-ball count. Of course, he came back and struck the guy out. But um, So that tweet didn't last very long. But no, you're right. And if you're referring to, say, Jacob deGrom, who 
had you know had more bad luck last night against the Boston Red Sox. I mean, the Red Sox earned their only run, but that's just the point. It was one run, and um, I like as I another joke on Twitter. Uh, well, well, maybe a joke. Who knows? But I said, yeah, Jacob Degrom matched Nick Pavetta pitch for pitch. <laughs> And, uh, you know, Nick Pavetta match, Jacob deGrom pitch for pitch for the most part. You know, I've seen a lot of stats popping up in this Jacob deGrom year, Todd, that uh, are all pointing out over the, not only just this year, but over his career, how many games he's really pitched, like what we would call a PQS five, you know, right. and, and even, even better, you know, these very high strikeouts, very low runs, no walks, very few hits. And he's still coming out on the short end of the score. Sometimes even losing games that he's literally lost one nothing, more than any pitcher I think anybody can ever remember. And I wonder, does does this recall anybody in baseball history for you this this long track record of excellent performance that's undone by poor team support? I'm not. Yeah, this isn't my uh, this isn't my forte. I'm sure there are pitchers out there that fall into that category. Everybody can cherry pick, you know, someone on their favorite team or whatever. But I mean, it, it's now beyond, you know, mathematical probability. I think it's beyond the Mets choke or choke. Or I don't want to say the word choke, but are so uptight when he's pitching. They're so nervous. They can't come. I mean, it, it, we're beyond all of that. It just defies logic. It defies everything. It's it's just absolutely amazing. I love the fact, and, and the Red Sox announcers talked about it last night, and I'm sure other you know teams talk about and people know that one of the most interesting aspects of Jacob Degrom is that he was a shortstop. Well, most players were, but he was a shortstop through college. He didn't start pitching until very late, and you know, so he maybe doesn't have the mileage on the arm that some other people his age. Because one of the most fascinating things to me, and every year I kind of tweet this out too, he's just about he's like uh, 22 months younger than Felix Hernandez, less than two years younger than Felix Hernandez. And, you know, one of them is, you know, hoping to get into the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee at some point. And the other is still going strong, if not, you know, as strong as he's ever been. And two years isn't much. But when you factor in when he started the pitch and mileage on the arm, maybe he's not as old as, you know, it's not the arm isn't as old as the uh, baseball card says it is. Well, an 051 ERA so far this year, 057 whip, and he only has two wins and five starts. It's really amazing, you know. uh, You you have to kind of shake your head that that this kind of thing can still go on. But go on, it does. And I'm sure people who had Jacob deGrom picked early in their drafts or for many, many dollars in their auctions – are still happy with the outcomes because he's ringing up innings like crazy. He's at 35 through his five starts. And if you prorate that out to 35 starts, he's got lots of innings. Of course, he's not going to maintain these ridiculous decimals, but they're going to be very, very good. And when you apply very, very good decimals over a very, very large innings base, you're really helping your team, even if you're not getting a lot of wins, although the wins would be nice. And you know what? The Mets, at this point, I mean, they've been playing pretty regularly. But they went through a, a real rough first couple of weeks of the season, none, none of their own doing, right? They can't control what happened to the Nationals, and they certainly can't control the weather. So they, you know, it was a you know, hurry-up-and-slow-down situation for them. The point I'm getting at is their batters are going to hit. They've got some good hitters on that team. And I do think that their batters will come around as a team, and DeGrom's going to start to get the wins that he's deserved. In previous years, the offense wasn't as good, well, at least I think on paper anyway. And it's not just Lindor, J.D. Davis, and 
if they can find a place for Dominic Smith and uh, uh, Michael Conforto is a lot better than he's playing. And Alonso looks terrible right now. He, it's just one of those things that's in his head. He needs one of those, you know, handle shots the other way to drop in to get the confidence back because he looks terrible. But he'll get it back. Uh, but I think the Mets are going to score. And, they're, you know, DeGrom is going to get his wins. It's just at this point, it's just. You know, like I said, I mean, you, you try to you try to figure out. All right, what is the mathematical possibility of the use Pythagorean theorem? But what's what, how many wins? It's well, forget it. It's just something going. You know, I think he's you know he I think he sold his soul to the devil. Make me the best pitcher in baseball, but never give me a win. Well, and he puts his team in position to get a win, which is really, when you come down to it, it's all a starting pitcher can do is put his team yes. in a position to win, and then it's up to them to follow through with some timely hitting, of score a few runs for a fella, maybe yes. maybe get a bullpen support that doesn't allow runs to score, those kinds of things. Uh, anything sure. else going on in uh, the early season so far that has really caused you to scratch your head? Uh, not, well, other than, you know what, what's causing me to, and I kind of alluded to it, it's got, it's, it's, it's fantasy baseball Twitter. It's as if this is the first time, you know, a Joe Ross has a, you know, perfect, you know, a great game and then has a terrible, this is what happens, friends. And I think, I think what happens, and I'm guilty of this too, because it's what I do for a living. But I think with all the new data that's out there, we're all trying to figure out the, the what's going on, exactly what's going on, figure out exactly what each player is going to do and be the first to say it and 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 be famous. And sometimes it's just Ocam's Razor. Ocam's Razor. It's just, it's April. It's just the way it is. It's unexplainable and it, 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 water will find its level. So, and I'm out there and we'll probably talk about some of the thing. We did talk about some of the things I'm doing, but sometimes it's, it's just April. That's the answer. It's April. And last time I looked at the Baseball HQ valuations, and I'm sure you look at your own uh, pretty regularly, that the names at the very top are not ones that we are like shaking our heads and going, where did that guy come from? Uh, at right. Baseball HQ, we got Ronald Acuna at the top, Whit Merrifield, Byron Buxton, maybe a bit of a surprise, but after last year, uh, I think a lot of people saw that this might be coming. Uh, J.D. Martinez is an established guy. Uh, Vladdy Jr., I guess that has been a bit of a welcome surprise, but again, a lot of people saw it coming. Trey Turner, Mike Trout, uh, Fernando Tatis. The one name that does stand out here, though, is Nick Solak. And at this point of the season, I know it's very early, but at what right. point when we're looking at a guy like Solak, do we start thinking that maybe he's not going to finish as a $35 five by five player, but he could finish in the twenties. No, absolutely. And I think, I don't think that's a, I don't think that would have been a hot take on March, on April 1st either. Solak, he reminds me a bit of, of Ben Zobrist in that one year he hits for a high average. The next year he stole a ton of bases. And the next year he, he, he hit some homers, but he never did them all in the same year. Well, th then he started to, and we, we kept waiting. When's that year where he does it all? Solak hasn't been playing nearly as long. He doesn't have nearly the the, the track record nor the, the history, but he's kind of like that, and he has the ability to do all three. And this year, they're all starting to come together. And it, it's one month, and like you said, I mean, I, I think he'll be steady, and other players will come up, some will go down. I think he – if he continues to run, he's a $20 player, and I think he will. There's no reason for him not to on that team. The uh, Rangers are certainly running like crazy, and so it's yeah. uh, it's likely that uh, <laughs> team philosophy accounts for so much in that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, on the pitching side, other than DeGrom's great performance, has anything caught you off guard in a, either a pleasant way or an unpleasant way? 
Um, just as we, you know, talking about the just the increase in strikeouts in general and sort of more general is the there aren't as many true opener primary pitcher games as we thought they would be to begin the season. It may turn out that way because right now, you know, there's some the more the pitchers are healthier. But I think we the way people talked is we weren't even going to be able to make a 900 innings limit because it's just not going to be there. That it's just I, sure innings per start are down. They definitely are down. But there are fewer of the true opener closer uh, opener primary pitcher. Uh, Tampa is has gotten back to it lately, and they do it right with the lefty righty using Brent Honeywell and then maybe Yarbrough. Texas is I like what Texas is doing, although they started to do the tandem with uh, Dane Dunning, who I know didn't do so well last time out. Dane Dunning and then uh, Taylor Hearn and then uh, Jordan Lyles and Wes Benjamin, the lefty righty thing. But Dunning was doing so well, they said, "The heck with that! You're staying in, kid. Going, you're going five. You're going six. So they're not even doing it. But um, we'll see. But I think just the um, I think we expected innings pitched starts to go down a bit but the other hand you know you mentioned how many innings DeGrom has and the the studs are getting their innings and the you know the lesser pitchers aren't I mean Kershaw last time I looked Kirk, Clayton Kershaw is leading the league in innings a lot of it has to do with he has one more start and you know just when, when everybody else you know cycles through they'll catch up but um the stars are you know the studs are going six and a third seven innings it's it's the other pl- players that aren't doing the uh the normal five innings on the relief side, of course, the first thing we all look at is saves. Uh, Mark Melanson leads the league with eight. I don't know that a lot of people saw that coming. He wasn't going as though he was going to get a ton of saves in most of the drafts I was in in the early going. Uh, Alex Reyes in St. Louis has been a bit of a surprise. Oh. We, we thought that that might be Jordan Hicks or Giovanni Gallegos. or They had some options there, and instead they went back to Alex Reyes. But the guy I'd like to ask you about, being up there in Boston, not many people gave a lot of... Uh, hope for Matt Barnes to have another good year. And here he is sort of oh. top five amongst relief pitchers in the league. And man, what a strikeout total, 25 Ks in 14 innings. He's always missed bats, but he's also missed the plate a lot. And, you know, Alex Cora was very quiet about Adam Ottavino and Matt Barnes, who would the closer be. You kind of had a feel there would be one. It wouldn't be a committee because he's always, he's always been a guy that, has relied on one on one closer, but they were kind of even in the spring. And then, if you recall, around opening day, uh, Matt Barnes was sidelined with COVID. He was uh, needed to clear the protocol. It was a contact issue, and so okay, well, Ottavino's going to get a little bit. Barnes came back. It's uh, I was wrong. I I picked Ottavino mainly because in that scenario, I will usually opt for the cheaper of the two. You know, trying to get, you know, trying to hope. And, and it's worked out in a couple of scenarios. It's worked out a couple of times. Um, Will Smith, perhaps, although that may be because of injury. Even Mark Melanson, uh, um, Jake McGee, some of these guys. You, you mentioned Melanson. And part of the interesting part of Melanson is the, the staff came out and said that uh, it's Emilio Pagan. You know, they said it. And then yet they went. They've, they've gone to Melanson, but Barnes. You know, I don't want to say if he. If he, I think he's at the point now where the leash is pretty long, because uh, Adovino hasn't even been. Well, he's been nails lately, but he started out slow. 
Garrett Whitlock is an interesting. I don't know if you've if, if, if you've had Ray on to talk about Garrett Whitlock, he's kind of coming out of nowhere as a Rule Five guy. That's 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 taken over the seventh inning as as part of the bridge. It's something a Rule Five guy interesting to look at could eventually start too. So it's one of I don't know if it's Dave Bush, sabermetric darling, HQ friend Dave Bush, member for several years. He was a uh, you know one of those guys who would, would not whose peripherals were better than his outcomes. He's the pitching coach. And I don't. I haven't heard a lot about Dave Bush doing this. Dave Bush doing that. He was the coach last year too. But who knows? You know, maybe a different environment under Cora. I'm curious. To, to, to what's there's something going on. There, these changes aren't luck. They're working with these pitchers, and I, I'm curious as to who it is. I um I don't read the local papers. Like I don't read the paper, and I go online. Maybe I should do a little bit of a search and see if someone's talking about it. And when we look at strikeouts, uh, again, we're seeing the usual suspects at the top of the table, DeGrom, Bieber, Glasnow, Garrett Cole, uh, Burns is up there. But uh, a couple of surprise names that I'd like to get your takes on. Uh, how about Joe Musgrove? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm doing a piece on strikeouts. I want to see where they're coming from because there's a certain, a couple of three areas where the league is striking out more. And I want to see if he fits into that mold. And he's a guy that talk about, you know, Dave Bush up pitching peripherals. He's a guy a lot of us expected to make this jump. And he's a, now it's not that Pittsburgh's a bad place to pitch as far as a park goes, but there has to be something about working on it, playing on a team that you just know has a chance to win every day. And as opposed to Pittsburgh, where, you know, I don't want to say you're collecting a paycheck because that's, that's not right, but it's just a different environment. So a good pitching park on a good team with a bunch of good pitchers, I'm not surprised that Musgrove made the step. And, of course, it's so early in the year that, you know, one incredible game will continue to, you know, have a lot of pull on your yearly stats. Eventually that'll, you know, get 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 folded in. But he's still – the numbers are still affected by that one outstanding game. Freddie Peralta's uh, near the top of the table in strikeouts as well. He's in the high 30s. Uh, despite a relatively limited amount of innings compared to most of the rest, I think barely over 20 innings. So he's doing well in that department, but he's also walking a lot of guys, a 14% walk rate. And I wonder how long do you think Freddie Peralta can either go without fixing this or how long will it take for him to get that under control? Or is walking a lot of guys or throwing a lot of pitches in that way just part of who he is and we're going to have to live with it? That's what I'm beginning to believe. I don't want to believe it. You know, I, you, you know, as an analyst, you, you, you just don't come on, guys. Just don't walk, don't you? You know, just don't walk those guys. Sometimes it's not that easy. As a you know, people, a lot of people look at strikeouts and say, well, you can't go deep in a game because he's striking out so many batters. It's not the strikeouts; it's the walks along with the strikeouts that mess, mess up the pitch count. And a guy like Peralta needs to come out. I think they they originally they being Milwaukee. We're talking about him, Peralta, being one of those primary pitcher types and not necessarily a starter, only having to go four innings, three and a third in the middle of the order and middle of the game to, to get the win. But he would look so good early. You know, over time, I think teams will, you know, smarter teams will will lay off. And he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have a four-pitch mix. It's the two-pitch mix with deception. I think teams will eventually lay off and uh and uh, and and the walks will, will will hurt him right now the walks aren't hurting him weather warms up put more some some more home runs i think the walks will hurt him as long as the walks don't hurt him 
the team doesn't care. Now they've got a great bullpen too with Devin Williams, who, well, not doing as well at all, and Hader, but Bruce Suter, the, Brent Bruce Suter, Brent Suter. So they, you know, they they have the bullpen to pick them up, but they don't have this. Well, with, with Burns and Woodruff, they do have some starters that can go deep, but you you know you don't want to rely on the bullpen for for you know three or four you know for two or you know for the middle for your number three starter. You'd like him to do some of the work. You want the bullpen saved for, you know, for the uh, Wade Miley's and et cetera. Another somewhat surprising strikeout artist has been uh, Atlanta's Huascar Inoa. Well, this guy kind of came out of nowhere, and all of a sudden he's uh, you know jostling for the lead. And if he had as many innings as everybody else, he might be closer to the top of the table as well. The problem here when you're assessing a guy like this is there's very little track record to go on, especially with the minor league season not having taken place last year. Yeah, you just said it. We have no idea what he did on the uh, on the alternate site. Did he learn a new pitch? We we have no idea. So, number scouting did not expect this, right? So, at what point? At what point do we make that transition? You know, when we start to, you know, you guys do a rank the starters every day for streaming or DFS, whatever. At what point do we adjust? You know, his expectations so that his baseline's higher, so that his rank is higher. You know, I mean, and usually with with me anyway. The day I do it is the day he turns into a pumpkin. So uh, we'll we'll see what happens. So, but uh, I mean, I, I've adjusted it a bit. But I mean, there's a reason why three year averages work. There's a reason why MLEs work. And I'll take the one Zola's an idiot for the other nine times where it worked out well. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola for Masters Ball and RotoWire and ESPN and all kinds of podcasts and radio shows at Sirius and. We were talking about strikeouts, Todd, in your regular weekly Z-Files column at Rotowire. You started an analysis of strikeouts with the hypothesis that there, if there's a specific subset of pitchers responsible for the early growth in strikeouts, that would be really handy information to have when we sit around and try to make our moves on a Sunday afternoon. How did you do the research? I just, I, well, I have access, you know, I, well, I mean, everybody has access via StatCast and other reasons. I just happen to have access to a database that I'm able to get this a little, maybe a little bit quicker. So I was able to just anything I can think of as as to what may help a strikeout. It could be types of pitches. It could be location. It could be curve. It could be slow. I mean, what, all the different factors that I could ascertain that would uh, influence the number of strikeouts I, I compared to uh, 2000 and I want to get it right 2018 2019 primarily because I just I'm throwing 2020 just out the window it's just there's just too many nuances that make the data not worth you know disqualifying it I mean geographical zones no DH uh, late start weather etc so I just didn't I didn't want to look at it at all so I just went through as many different possible factors as I could. You know, as as you know, former scientist, sometimes you get down this rabbit hole, and at the end of the day, you find out you didn't really learn anything. That everything went up equally everywhere. And sure, I it's not it doesn't it makes for a terrible conclusion in my piece. It's not going to win research article of the year this way. But I mean, that's a conclusion though, right? I right. mean, that's that's a and I didn't get that conclusion. I found some actionable things, but it began. You know, strikeouts are you know they're pretty much up everywhere. But there's there are a couple of places that they seem to be up, and to me a little bit surprising as well. Uh, a couple of areas where they seem to be higher than I would have 
you know, intuitively, if I were you know, write down the five places you think strikeouts are up, I don't know that I would have gotten a few of these. I'll bite. What are they? All right. Uh, see how I said, you? We've been doing this long enough. We can. We have. Uh, you think we practice this? Uh, off-speed stuff and 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 bend and 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 breaking balls up in the zone kind of surprised me a bit. Now, it oftentimes when you first hear these things, you're like, "What?" But then when you you know you sit back and you think about it, with the uppercut swing, that you know that that's that that is designed for batters to drive the ball, you know, waste, you know, need, you know, waste down low in the zone. Cause you know, if you, if you to uppercut swing, that's to start low and then high. It's hard to start an uppercut swing at the, you know, at the letters. Right. And, and although I don't know if strike of the letters is one of those things that we've heard it, we heard it growing up. I don't know how many haven't heard strike of the letters very often lately. except when Angel Hernandez is umpiring, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> or when you're talking but, about um, the post office. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. But, um, so when you think about it though, I think that it makes sense to, to work higher in the zone because it's just harder. These, these batters that are now trained with the, with the uppercut swing it, to me, it just, it takes a lot of guts to throw a soft pitch up in the zone, right? You hang it or you have a guy looking for it. It's going to go a long way. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day, not, you know, other than the fact that I was, you know, five eight tubby and, and couldn't throw very fast. I don't think I could be a pitcher just because I couldn't throw a ball that wasn't purposely a strike. I mean, I was going to throw a lot of balls that weren't strikes, but I couldn't throw a pitch planning on it not to be a strike. I just, you know, it's not in my it's not in my DNA to do that. But that's what pitchers do, right? They 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 want you to go fishing. I think it takes you know a, a changeup. I think it takes a lot of guts to throw a changeup. If you're going to beat me, you're going to beat my number one. I don't beat this little slow thing. So I think that a lot of pitching's in the head. But so just the once they get over the stigma and they start throwing stuff up. So I'm, I'm going to take a look and I want to see. You know, is Musgrove working higher in the zone? Uh, you mentioned Peralta. Is Peralta working higher in the zone? And maybe that's why their strikeouts are up now. People have been talking about more, you know, more fastball, fewer fastballs in general, more breaking stuff over the past several years. Um, there's more, you know, at this point, there are more, the more relatively speaking, the strikeouts on curve and sliders is, it hasn't increased itself, the, the raw percentages, but the usage of the curve and the slider has gone up. So the raw number of strikeouts on the curve and slider has increased, and maybe that's where Peralta uh, comes into play, is because those are the pitches that have the highest strikeout rate, and that's what he, you know, that's where he, that's where he's getting his strikeouts is on the slider. Where else besides up in the zone with off speed? Sinking fastballs are very effective high in the zone, but they're not pitchers aren't throwing as many of them. So maybe there is a little bit of a, I don't want to, you know, I, uh, that, I, that idea of um, not wanting to be miss high with a, with a, with a sinking fastball. Uh, I'm not, not exactly sure, but um, one other thing I've noticed, and you, you, you've talked to, you talked to Gene McCaffrey on occasion on the, uh, he's a frequent guest on the podcast and he's been tracking this. So I've been kind of, if Gene tracks something, it's worth tracking. He's been talking about how the, uh, home field advantage has been declining over the past couple of years. Uh, and one of the reason being that the, he believes it's the umpiring with so much scrutiny that the umpiring 
is more, I say more fair, fairer home and away. And then the strikeout rate isn't, it isn't as high, at least so far this year, strikeouts are back up to being significantly higher at home, which is important more for DFS and for streaming purposes. But, um, you know, it's just kind of, you know, I've always been stream a streamer at home until I, you know, what, what Gene had to say, that it's not as important anymore and kind of got away from it. And now I'm kind of going to get back to it again, that uh, you, you're regaining that advantage at home because uh, maybe I don't know if it's because of the fans are back on the stands again or what it might be. But um, umpires are back to favoring the home team a little bit. That's too bad, too, because, uh, well, anything that gets the robots coming and doing the umpiring for us, I think if it advances that cause, I'm all in favor of it. But uh, generally speaking, did you find anything that you think you're going to be able to use as a fantasy manager yourself or that you're going to be able to advise your readers how they can uh, optimize their rosters using this new information, or is it a little bit more marginal? No, actually, what I you, you kind of hinted, you know, what at what I'm going to kind of do is that, and I'm in the process of doing it now for this week's edition episode of the Z Files. Is I'm going to take the not the strikeout leaders, but those that have increased their strikeouts relative to their expectations the most, and then see if they fall into any of these classes that show or you know that the league is striking out more. Now, is it a you know is it a chicken or egg thing? Or, uh, are these are these pitchers uh, are the numbers moving because of them, or are they taking advantage of the league's softness in this area? That much I don't know, and I don't know that I will know. But it, to me, it's more a way of trying to go exactly. Will, will Freddie Peralta continue to miss bats as he's doing? That's what I want to do: is go through the top ten or whatever it might be uh, starters to figure out, you know, buy, sell, trade for, etc. When you're looking at these data, Todd, are you looking at what kind of pitch is a strike three, or are you looking at what kind of pitches make up bat bats in which strikeouts occurred? Uh, a little, a little of both. I, I would say I, I, I presented swinging strikes and called strikes, and also the 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 number of of uh, actual strikeout pitches, so that it's it's all there. I haven't gone real granular yet is you know to see if there's anything there uh you, as i know you're aware and i'm sure a lot of the listeners were alex fast is doing a lot of groundbreaking work in this area with called strikes and he's now gotten recognition on mlb well he works for him i mean he, he worked for mlb but on, on mlb network he's there and we talked about on espn just how important you know, we always talk about swinging strike rate well you can fine-tune um the predictive nature of strikeouts if you add call strikes. Now, uh, certain you have to you have to fine tune that a little further with check swings and tips and fouls. Uh, he he kind of hones in a little bit, homes in on uh, gran- granulizes that it's not just called strikes. But anyway, that's neither here nor there as far as this goes. But yeah, I don't know. I haven't I, did, I haven't looked in that direction to find out. Um, uh, is is someone so getting more called strikes? And if he is getting more called strikes, will eventually that stop? I don't know how sticky called strikes are, for instance. So that's something to uh, definitely keep in mind. And in called strikes in what part of the zone? Um, high, low, you know, high, low, 
medium. I did. I mean, I, I got that data, and I didn't. I, to me, I wasn't aware of that. There are just fewer. I mean, some, one of these things. I guess I should have been, but wasn't. Just I wasn't aware of that. There's there's more called strikes lower in the zone than there are high in the zone. Whether that's because people are swinging, making contact, or just the umpire's nature, I don't know. But um, so before I can make, you know, do experiments and make you know conclusions on it, I need to learn more about the the concept of of where the strikes are being called myself. Yeah, when I first saw the uh, the metric swinging strikes plus called strikes, I thought, well, what other kinds are there? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, and I guess what they exclude is balls that are put into play on on balls that are in the zone. So they're differentiating between ball thrown in the strike zone versus a ball that's thrown in the strike zone and not hit, and and therefore becomes a strike. And I, the only thing I'm not sure of, Todd, maybe you can help me out if you know. Where do foul balls fit into that? Are they considered swinging strikes, or is a swinging strike just a whiff? I have to go back. I mean, Alex talks about it on pitcher's list. I don't want to. I don't want to misquote, but there are some very specific conditions needed to be what he calls a called strike, or a swinging strike, or right, yes, and a swinging strike. You know, like you mentioned, foul balls and foul tips and foul tips that are caught. There's, there's. I don't. I don't have them memorized. I don't, you know, it's it's his work. I, it'll, didn't, I don't want to do it justice, or I, I can't do it justice. But um, it, it's on search CSW on pitchers list. Alex Fast, and it's all it's all there. I will do that because I think it's a really interesting concept, and I think it's going to be highly applicable in a lot of different ways for, for the kind of pitch by pitch research that we, the industry seems to be moving towards. Because I mm-hmm. think I think. There's a chance, and I will talk more about stickiness, I suppose, later on, but I think there's a possibility that some of these kind of data are going to stabilize relatively quickly because the sample size is going to get rather big rather quickly. It's not like counting innings or counting even plate appearances. You're talking about individual pitches, and for starters, that's 100 a game, which means through five games, uh, Jacob deGrom probably has thrown 500 pitches, which is a pretty good sample size. I know we're going to break it down from there into breaking balls and sliders and, and fastballs and various kinds of fastballs and all of those classifications. But I think the possibility exists that this is the kind of data that is going to prove to be more predictive than some other things that we tend to rely on. Right. And when you, if you add that onto the and I know they've been doing this, uh, Vince Gennaro, a sabermetician I talked to several years ago, one of his projects is, isn't just individual pitchers looking at it, but grouping pitchers of a similar, similar classification together so that the, the inventory of pitches grows so that you, so not only, you know, so you're not wondering if, if, if Jacob deGrom's stabilizes, you're wondering if anybody who throws this pitch in this manner will it stabilize? And I think that's, that's when you, when they start to combine those two aspects of it, I think they will begin to get a smaller sample needed for eh, some, some level of reliability. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and ESPN and Sirius XM and uh, Rotowire. And Todd, you also had a Z-Files column at Rotowire, uh, titled Maximum Exit Velocity, Minimum Value. And you started off by saying a drawback to the more advanced stats being used in the game is that more people are misusing the advanced stats in the game. What did you mean? Yeah, I kind of alluded to it before. We're all trying to find the answer. And sometimes it's not there. Or 
and it's you know it's it's a pet peeve too, and calling out people, so be it. But if you're gonna use a statistic, if you're gonna use a concept, understand it. I mean, it's you know, don't hear me talk about it or Alex Fast. I mean, understand it before you go. That's why I kind of you know hedged around a question we asked answer be asked before because I don't feel comfortable doing research on it yet because I don't understand it yet. So if you're going to apply something or act like you know something about it, understand it. And it's not just fantasy analysts. I mean, I'll just use maximum exit velocity. It's not just fantasy analysts, but we're hearing it on, on broadcast. And I understand it. They're looking for sensationalism, right? They're looking for the, the eye-popping, looking for the wow. They're looking for the effect. So that's that's wow. How fast? 120 MPHs. Wow. Vladimir Guerrero, 118 miles. You know, wow. Um, I can I can guess I can understand it, but don't present it in such a manner that it means anything more than wow. It's, it's and that's what I think people are doing. I'm seeing, you know, some Twitter stuff when they people do some analysis analysis on players, and they'll reference maximum exit velocity as a reason to like or dislike or uh, you know go for a player. And I didn't know what it meant. I wanted to find out. I mean, is it predictive? It's, it, I'm led to believe it is. So I did a little research and you can tell by the title. Well, sorry, friends, it's not. That's funny because I had heard a fair amount of discussion about max exit velocity being a pretty good predictive indicator, even after a relatively short run into the season. What were the results of your study that made, led you to the opposite conclusion? If you, I mean, you know, we have to have an off, an off, an off-air uh, meeting on air. If if you have an article on that, I'd love to see it because I couldn't find anything. Um, if it's just people talking, well, that kind of feeds into what I'm saying. I basically found that it doesn't correlate with anything. It the maximum exit velocity does not correlate with BABIP. It doesn't correlate. It correlates a tiny bit with power, I suppose. Uh, it correlates a tiny bit with BABIP. And part of the reason is there's just so many different kinds of swings that if you've got a more level swing, you're going to hit line drives and ground balls harder. If you've got the uppercut swing, which we talked about, you're going to hit fly balls harder. So just because not all swings are made the same, exit velocity, you know, what your maximum exit velocity is, someone's maximum exit velocity, if they have a flatter swing or if they – make better contact on, on pitches that don't move as much. Therefore they're going to get transfer more energy. Their, their high exit velocity is going to be on, you know, ground balls and line drives more. Uh, so I just, what I, it's, it's so counterintuitive. I mean, if you can hit the ball that hard, it must mean something. And I think it means you're a good baseball player and it, it's worth looking, looking, doing a deeper dive. I don't think you can look at someone's maximum exit velocity and say he's going to hit for more power or he's going to hit for a higher batting average. I think it just means take a look at this guy and see what's going on. Uh, James Anderson, prospect analyst for Rotowire, I mentioned this on a, on one of the SiriusXM shows. He's like, so you're telling me if I go to one of these minor league games and someone hits the ball really hard, I should ignore him? Like, no, James, I guess I'm not saying that, but – I'm not saying that you go then right up, he's going to hit for 300. I'm saying, you know, you know, and I think it's the same way in the majors. If you're able to hit the ball that hard, all right, sure, maybe, you you know, whatever, blind squirrel, whatever, uh, swing so hard because you have to hit the ball. But I think it does – it is a it, – it, to me, it's more of a an, an alert. It's a flag 
to take a look at this player as opposed to using it as a way to, you know, buy low because his ex- his average, because his maximum exit velocity is so high. Well, you know, your maximum is it's one figure because, you know, he's he ranks so high in the maximum exit velocity chart. Well, one time he hit the ball in the screws. You also took on the thorny topic of stabilization in general, the point at which a particular stat or metric uh, becomes usable. And before we get into that in any detail, let me ask, when you talk about the usability of the stat, uh, what are you talking about? Uh, Is it predictive? Can we draw conclusions? Can we make viable, you know, for the future, rest of season conclusions based upon what's happened to date and the you know just the word stabilization forget you know for the fact that it's that that, that it it doesn't do what people think it does and the you know russell carlton i believe i don't want to misquote him but i i believe i've read that he himself has regrets the term stabilization because even within the sample it's not so much that it's stable it's still 50% luck, 50% skill. If you want to kind of look at it in layman's terms, that's not stable. Um, so that kind of, it's just the word, the term itself is a bit misleading. You know, reliable. I don't even know. I'm going to go down to useful. I kind of want to go, <laughs> I want to go down to the, the connotation scale. I don't, because reliable might not be good. I want to find out when it's useful. I want to find out when I have a better than 50% chance of being right by making this contention. I think predictive is a really good word for it, whether you're saying it is or it isn't predictive, because predictive right. has a very tight meaning. If you look at right. what's happened over the period X, you know that you can be very confident that the same sort of thing is going to happen in period X plus one or X plus four or X plus 19 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And before we get on to this, I have a question that I've often wondered about, and that is, do you think these stabilization numbers cross seasons? The when I ever see it, it's always from the start of the season to now, and then at a certain point the 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 number becomes stable in air quotes, and we can rely on it from that point forward. But why can't we rely on it if it's had you know two months in the previous season and the first two months now to make up a four month sample? Because it's not reliable in the first place. Uh, <laughs> well, what, if it was, what, well, if it, I can't, I don't, if it, we don't, I don't know if it. I mean, because it's not. I don't know. Now, just to explain, is what what you know, all right? Sixty plate appearance is sort of a common uh, sample given for for strikeouts for to stabilize. And what people, and including myself, I mean, it was whatever ten years ago on, on this very podcast, I was pounding my chest coming out with the greatest new next level analysis how I can do rest of season uh, projections based on this fact and. You know, a couple of years later, I was sort of uh, crawling into a hole and explaining why it's not so good. But what it means within that 60 plate appearances, the the luck skill ratio is evened out. So whatever it be, whether it be quality of competition, warm weather, cold weather, you know, uh, being in a good mood, being in a bad mood, whatever it might be, within those 60 plate appearances, the uh, the results were 60 were 50 percent luck, 50 percent skill, and um, I assumed and others did that meant the next 60 were going to be the same and the next 60 were going to be the same. All it meant is within that 60, the luck skill is 50, 50. It does not mean the next 60 are going to be similar to the first 
60 and then and then so on and so on and so on. And what I would do is I would regress it. I would what I what I did was all right, if at 60 at 60 plate appearances if there's a chance, you know, if this is the new level, well, I'm not sure. So I'm going to regress it halfway. I'm going to take my projection and regress it to what it is after 60, and that's my new that's my new expectation. I'm just going to average those. And a lot of people did the same thing, and I thought that was the cat's meow. And it, like I said, it turned out it's not. People still do it. People still do it that way. And I mean, I you know maybe you know I, I you know I, I talk, I speak, I I write. Apparently, I'm not getting my message isn't getting out because I'm still hearing it and I'm still hearing, you know, pushback. Well, it has to mean something. Well, yes, but by, by presenting it the way you're presenting it, you're not getting the point across and it doesn't mean what you think it means or as much as what you think it means. I think because strikeouts stabilizes within the definition faster than anything else. I think it, ha I think it probably does is more useful faster than other statistics. I just don't think it's as fast as, as we think it is. Or as accurate, it sounds like you're saying as well. Yeah, as, yeah, as certain, just, yeah, right. Maybe is a, a good way to put it, or as, sure. as high a probability of being uh, correct in that longer run. Do you think it, is there any point at which these, well, you stay with the strikeout metric for now, but is there any point at which there's so many of them that you can be way more confident that the next 400 will be the same as the previous 400? Or does it ever actually settle out? No, I mean, this was a very, someone more in tune with statistical methods can probably fine tune this experiment, this, this, this study that I did, but I kind of did just that in this piece where I, I used 60 plate appearment, plate appearance, plate appearances increments. And I looked at the year to date and I looked at this 50% regression, which I just kind of explained. And then what I called the weighted average. And that is that it, it's not a 50% regression. It's however far into the season it is, it's that percentage. And then the rest of the season, it's expected. And, of course, we don't know how many at-bats are going to get, so it's kind of a backwards-looking thing when I did it. Uh, but I – so, you know, basically that was the weighted average. And is So that if a, if a player is going to have 600 plate appearances after 60, 10% uh, was – the, the number at the time and 90% and was my expectation, um, you know, at, at halfway through, then it's 50, 50, you know, it, that, that sort of thing. And what I found out, at least, you know, during this, what I will call it, you know, somewhat of a crude study was the, and this is, you know, my, the 50% regression was just the worst predictor of what ended up, what ended up happening. The, uh, the year to date was, uh, actually, the the weighted average was better through around two hundred and the three hundred plate appearances. So for half a season, doing the straight weighted average gave a little bit better of an indication. Once you were past that, once you went to the three hundred and sixty range, the current rate, not regress, just the current rate, was a better predictor of the final so whether that means that they stabilize in this case after 360 plate appearances it may be between because they went from 300 to 360 maybe that's the number we're looking for maybe it's actually 300 to 360 plate appearances the uh the current what you are is what you get number is trustworthy 
trustworthy for the rest of the season, not just the end of the season, because if it was just the end of the season, obviously you're building more and more of the past season into the that just that final number. So are you saying that you get to 360, you take what the rate is, and now you get plate appearance 361 through plate appearance 600? And you can yeah, and you, you can predict that. Well, yeah. If you if that's what you if 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 you 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 know if if you if like you run rest of season projections and you need to plug a strikeout percent into your engine to generate other numbers, if you use what the player has after 360 plate appearances, it'll be more accurate than any of these other than regressing towards expected. It, it, that's the that's the single most act. Whether it, it itself isn't gonna, you know, it'll change. It won't be hundred percent right hundred percent of the time. But it, it's the best predictor towards the end. Now it, it gets better as you know it, it gets better as there are more plate appearances, of course, right? Because yeah, right. very, very last plate appearance, it is what it is. Although, you know, who knows what the next one's going to be? But right, yeah. um, but you know, so it's uh, and, and and again, people that are really good at stats will. Well, I don't want to. I don't want. Yeah, they they will poke holes, but they may be able to fine tune this particular study uh, a little a little better. I think it's a little bit. It's a little bit crude the actual study, but it, to me, it was enough to show that using stability points in the manner that myself and others were using them in isn't good. But I don't know that I've come up with the do this instead final conclusion. You did find a strong connection between early season home run rates and rest of season home run rates, uh, and I think that was universal. That's across the entire sport, uh, or across the, all of the big leagues, I guess, not the entire sport in Japan and Korea and Dominican Republic and stuff. <laughs> but after 450 played games, you felt pretty confident that you knew what the home run rate was going to be for Major League Baseball this year for the rest of it. Based upon history, history being, I looked at past, and I'm not the only one that does this. I don't want to, other people do this in similar manners, come up with maybe a slightly different number of games. But what it what it shows is what you can do is the number after 450 games, you can then extrapolate by month. And I know baseball starts, you know, one year started March 20th, another year April 4th. So it's not perfect. But you know, one it, it's neither you know the the extrapolation isn't perfect, but it's an idea. It, it gives you it gives you ballpark. What we're comfortable saying based upon the numbers after the 150 450 games is baseball was tracking a little bit ahead of 2017, not not close to 2019, but we baseball is a bit ahead of 2017. Remember 2018, there was a pretty nice drop. So uh, here's one of those things where, you know, where, where the research may not lead to much because, and we talked about this, man, it seems so long ago at this point, the last Arizona first pitch. Uh, what was going to happen? What were we going to do in projections? Because we didn't, you know, for the 2020 season, because we didn't know about the ball. And my, what I said was, I'm not going to, I'm going to let the three-year weighted average do the work for me because, you know, 2019 was high, 2018 was low. 2017 was kind of in the middle. I'm just going to let I'm just going to let the weighted average take care of it for me cuz two of those three years it was high, but that third year is going to temper it a bit. And that's kind of end up what's happening this year again throwing 2020 out. 
So there's a reason, you know, people say it's lazy analysis using three-year averages or five-year averages. There's a reason why it's not lazy. It works. Well, this has been interesting, and I know you work very hard at it. And uh, we're going to take a break here, Todd. Come back a little bit later on for segment two, and we're going to talk about uh, some tout table uh, information that you've been generating at Tout Wars. And then we're going to have a new feature kind of replacing <coughs> boons and banes, and you're the, uh, you're the inaugural guy. You're the test kitten, uh, whatever they call that. So stand by, and we'll have you back in a few minutes. Excellent. Todd Zola appears at Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and SiriusXM, as well as some other podcasts. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports. Nick has the National League News. Ray with the American League News next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the GM's office, co-general manager Ray Murphy. Hey, I know that guy offers up some insights from the BaseballHQ.com leading indicators reports with examples like Ty France's power, Stefan Crichton's at-risk saves, and a lot more. In the Market Pulse, analyst Brad Coleman looks at the free agents available in leagues of different depths, and you'll see names like Haesyong Kim in San Diego, Michael Fulmer in Detroit, and a raft of others. And in the speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield looks at those skills searching for roles, including Mike Ford in New York, Brad Miller in Philadelphia, and Darren Ruff in San Francisco. Nick and I will be talking about that column a little later on as well. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow. There's buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. Fantasy market analysis, as I mentioned in the Market Pulse from Brad Coleman. Injury analysis in Matt Cederholm's column, The Big Hurt. And groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are the tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, and those leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. It's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. That's what it's all about, and that's why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report and leading off our National League News and analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. A lot of news in Arizona to start with, Nick. Uh, the Diamondbacks sent Cole Calhoun, their outfielder, to the uh, injured list. Also, right-hander Taylor Widener was placed on the 10-day IL. The team recalled Dalton Varsho, kind of a, a combination of a catcher and an outfielder, and right-hander Riley Smith from the alternate training site. Let's start with the Cole Calhoun-Dalton Varsho part of this equation. Uh, how does Dalton Varsho fit in, and what are his chances of being value-add for the uh, fantasy roster? Well, you know, Dalton Varsho was a guy that, uh, that a lot of people were excited about. He was uh, Arizona's number two prospect entering the season, the 2020 pandemic season. Uh, and he lost his rookie status last year. Uh, only managed a 218 expected batting average, 188 batting average. Uh, power numbers were good. Um, still a guy that I, and, and has some speed. So uh, still a guy that uh, a lot of people, I think, are, are hoping could do something for them, especially at the catcher position where he had some uh, head eligibility. Um, looks like now he's going to be an outfielder. 
Uh, and complicating his value is the fact that Carson Kelly is off to a hot, a hot start in 2021. So that can mean that down the road, Varsha will wind up as an outfielder without catcher eligibility. But uh, certainly worth watching, I think, in all leagues to see if he begins to regain his, uh, uh, his, his, his uh, hitting prowess that he showed uh, in 2019. So uh, I think someone to watch, uh, someone um, a lot of people may have rostered and might want to get him in your lineup for the next week and see how things go. I think we had one for one last night on, on Thursday night, uh, scored a run. So uh, a, a good beginning, at least for Varsho. I guess the question here is uh, Calhoun's hamstring injury. It's a 10-day IL kind of thing, but I, it seems like it'll be longer than 10 days, depending on how serious it is. And of course, they haven't announced that. But uh, doesn't it feel to you like uh, as soon as Calhoun comes back, Varsho's going to be either on the bench or back at the alternate site? It would it would feel like that unless he really proves himself in the in the interim. So, uh, but you know, there's so many injuries going on; it's hard to tell. He could be he's he's useful at more than that than than one position. So, uh, it all just depends on how things on how things roll out. So, it's the kind of guy that I think I would take a take a flyer on for the next week or two and see what happens. And I mentioned uh, Taylor Widener going on the DL. Riley Smith recalled. Any interest in Riley Smith for the nonce? Smith has been up and down so far in 2021 after pitching well in relief in 2020. He's now started two games for the Diamondbacks along with four relief appearances. Uh, results have not been, uh, have been really uninspiring. 6.08 XERA, a BPV of one. So probably not somebody we want to pay a lot of attention to. A BPV of one. <laughs> that kind of <laughs> says it all, doesn't it? A base performance value, just as a reminder to the listeners, is a kind of a combination metric that takes into account all of the base skills that we look for in pitchers. And an ace-level pitcher, what is it, around 70, 75, maybe a little higher than that. And the really, truly elite pitchers get up over 100. So a BPV of one really says uh, quite a bit in that department. Uh, speaking of Arizona pitchers, though, Nick... The Diamondbacks also activated Chris Davinsky, and the reason I mention this is that I remember in the preseason run-up to the start of this year, Chris Davinsky was being bandied about as a possible closer in Arizona before he hit the IL. How interested should we be in that possibility that Davinsky comes in and takes on a high-leverage role in that bullpen? I think I would be very interested in Davinsky at this point because uh, – he was, as you said, in contention for the closer job before he left the team for undisclosed reasons. Uh, good to see him back now. No one has run away with the job yet. So it's possible he could claim the job eventually. Uh, in any event, he's likely to be leave, used at high leverage situations uh, right away. So uh, uh, I think I would watch Davinsky. Uh, uh, Stefan Crichton got his third save on Thursday night, uh, but no one has really grabbed hold of the job at this point. On to Miami we go. I guess we're staying in the warmer parts of the country, but uh, unfortunate news there. The, one of this year's big stories, Jazz Chisholm, uh, came out of somewhat out of nowhere and really got off to a running start, literally and figuratively. Uh, all of a sudden, here he goes to the injured list. Phil Hertz covering the story for Baseball HQ's playing time today. Uh, what goes on with Jazz Chisholm and how serious uh, is this injury? Well, Chisholm was off to an excellent start, uh, uh, ex, an ex-batting average of uh, 251, PX of 163, speed 153. Uh, the latter two numbers have translated to four homers and seven steals uh, early on. He beat out Isan Diaz for the second base job during spring training. And so uh, Diaz was brought back from the alternate site. He's 35 for 223 in the majors with five homers and zero for three in try attempting steals. Uh, 
But that said, his numbers weren't much worse than Chisholm's were entering the year. So for now, we've moved some projected at-bats from Chisholm to Diaz uh, until we get further information about how how long Chisholm may be uh, out. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure, Nick, that I really bought this whole Jazz Chisholm thing. I mean, obviously, he's off to the excellent start. You mentioned uh, four homers, seven steals. you got to like that. But anytime something like this comes out of nowhere or comes seemingly out of nowhere, I'm a little suspicious and... Uh, I don't know that I'm 100% bought in on Chaz, Jazz Chisholm, but boy, I just don't think I can buy in at all on Ezon Diaz. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I don't think there's any reason to buy into Diaz at this point. And so Chisholm holders just hope that he has to hope, have to hope that he gets back very, very quickly and that he can find the groove he was in before the injury. That's always kind of an issue, isn't it, with a guy who's, who's uh, doing more than you expect of him. Uh, after an injury, can he get back into that same groove? once he returns to the team. And, of course, anytime you have a speed guy or a guy whose fantasy value derives largely from his ability to steal bases, a hamstring injury kind of makes that even worse. Right, very definitely. In Philadelphia, they made a bunch of moves. Uh, The biggest one, I think, we see a right-hander Spencer Howard and outfielder Mickey Moniak get sent to the alternate site, uh, and they recalled outfielder Odubel Herrera. And Odubel Herrera, I'm sure, was on quite a few rosters coming out of draft season. He probably was, and so it's it's likely that the controversial Herrera will get a chance to carve out some playing time in center field uh, because that's where the Phillies have struggled to get any production so far. So uh, before you run out and claim him, however, remember in mind that from June 25th, 2018 through the date of his 2019 suspension, Herrera only batted 207 with a 600 OPS. Of course, prior to that time, he was a very productive hitter. The other interesting piece of news is that the demotion of of, uh, top prospect Spencer Howard. Um, And there are kind of quotes around the demotion because the reason for the move is to switch out Howard to stretch out Howard so he can join the rotation. So while Philadelphia has gotten all it could ask from Aaron Nola and Zach Eflin and Zach Wheeler, uh, the rest of the rotation has been a disappointment. And so while Howard was knocked around a bit this month, his peripherals remain exciting. For example, he struck out eight and walked only two over 4.1 innings while hitting the high 90s with his fastball. So if Howard gets dropped in some league because he's been sent to the alternate site, uh, just keep in mind they're trying to stretch him out as a starter. Uh, and he might be worth picking up. And obviously a very highly rated prospect, so I I was just thinking the same thing as you said it. There might be some owners in some leagues, possibly because of league rules, uh, roster restrictions, that kind of thing, who are obliged for one reason or another to put Spencer Howard uh, back into their free agent pool or onto their waiver wire, and if so, I think this could be a tremendous buying opportunity, as you said. Yeah, very definitely, I think. So that's one I would definitely keep an eye on, and I probably want to watch Herrera, too. There, there, he was certainly a productive hitter uh, prior to 2018, uh, and there's a chance some of that could return, but I, he's the guy I would just kind of watch at the moment. All I'll say about that is in 2018, I could run uh, two miles because <laughs> I was a lot younger then. <laughs> That's right, exactly. So, uh, I, I don't know. Odubel Herrera's had a lot of trouble, of course. You mentioned the controversy. Uh, he got into some trouble with the law and domestic violence and that kind of stuff. So uh, I think we have to be very cautious about uh, Odubel Herrera. And just before we move on, Nick, I'm curious about your position on players who have these kind of sort of uh, um, off-the-field situations 
as a fantasy manager, do you take any position on that kind of thing when you're making roster decisions? Like, would uh, an Odobel Herrera who has this particular track record be off your list because of that particular track record? I, I don't think so in a fantasy league. I certainly would uh, would keep an eye on him. But, you know, you hope that people learn from the mistakes they've made in the past and, and won't repeat something. So a uh, first offense, you kind of say, okay, let's, let's, not, let's make sure this doesn't happen again. Uh, and he probably deserved the suspension that he got. But uh, then if he's going to, if the, if the team is willing to bring him back and I'd let him play, then I'm certainly willing to put him on my roster. I think the part of the argument that really holds water with me is we do live in a, in a moral society that says once somebody transgresses and pays their the duly uh, applied punishment, then we're supposed to forgive and let it go and move on. Uh, of course, keep an eye on things and make sure that there's not any uh, repeat actions in, in that regard. But until there are, I think we have to give the benefit of the doubt to the offender. At least that's what our sort of our moral teachings tell us. Yeah, I think I agree with you on that very definitely. The flip side of it, of course, from a practical point of view is uh, the time off can't have helped uh, his performance any. You know, you don't get to see live pitching, probably maybe get a little out of shape in the meantime because you have no uh, access to the team facilities and all that kind of stuff. So the, there's a practical issue as well. Uh, Colorado Rockies, Nick, optioned outfielder Sam Hillier to the alternate site, recalled first baseman Matt Adams on Thursday. Uh, first of all, this is uh, something of a surprise, not a surprise given Hilliard's performance, but Hilliard's performance is a surprise because he came into this season on a lot of uh, get this guy in your draft advice from a lot of touts in a lot of places. Yeah, he did indeed. I mean, a, a guy with, with, his, uh, with his power hitting in Coors Field, uh, a lot of high expectations that this guy could be of some, uh, of some value on a roster. Uh, so far, he's, uh, he's done nothing. He's hitting around 100, uh, zero power. So I'm not surprised they optioned him. And uh, as a fantasy manager, has him on one, on one of my benches at the moment. Uh, he'll be leaving the team, uh, heading for the alternate site, wherever that may be, or back to my waiver wire. Jock Thompson, in his playing time today report, Nick says the beneficiaries playing time-wise are going to be Raymond Tapia, Garrett Hampson, and Jonathan Daza. And this is interesting to me because coincidentally, uh, we had a report by Ryan Bloomfield in his latest speculator column titled "Skills Searching for Roles," and one of the likely uh, candidates there was Jonathan Daza in Colorado. Yes, Jonathan Daza. Uh, as, uh, as Ryan says, excellent speed and a decent hit tool in Coors Field. Colorado's interested. Uh, Daza's off to an impressive 13 for 40 start in part-time duty. That last part could change very quickly. Uh, fourth outfielders like Daza have multiple paths of playing time, and the early success could stick given his outlook as a prospect. Has a career 318, 359, 438, minor league slash line, stole 31 bases at high A in 2018. Uh, our power projections for Daza are kind of soft. He's never hit more than 11 home runs in a season. But a Coors inflated batting average with speed upside puts him real near the top of, uh, of a uh, list of people worth speculating on, I think, at this point, and especially with the Hager demotion. 
in Atlanta, uh, Alain Leonardis covers the American League East for playing time tomorrow, which is our roster forecasting, taking a bit longer of a look at the various rosters of all five teams in each division. And Alain was writing about the center field situation in Atlanta. Of course, they thought uh, there that Christian Pache was going to displace Ender Inciarte in, in center field and run with the job, even though he's just 21 years old. And uh, it didn't work that well. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Christian Pache was struggling to say the least, I think four for 30 at the time of the write-up. He had a single walk and 13 strikeouts, really bad. And so then he got hurt and Ender Inciardi stepped up and uh, took over the uh, took over the role and he got hurt. So <laughs> enter Guillermo Heredia. What does Alain de Leonardo say about the prospects of Heredia being a fantasy asset? Yeah, Guillermo Heredia. If, if you've never heard of this guy, uh, there's probably a good reason. He's 30 years old, a former Cuban League star who's bounced around several organizations since debuting with Seattle in 2016. Uh, but he got Fantasy Matters' attention with a two-homer, six-RBI game against the Cubs, and he stayed productive. His 2021 line reads 276, 417, 621. Seven runs, four doubles, two home runs, seven RBIs, six walks, eight strikeouts in 29 at-bats. Not too bad. The kind of uh, kind of guy who will get your attention. So uh, what happens now? At this point, he'll continue to play for the time being. Uh, but Pache has recovered and now been assigned to the alternate site to get his swing back. Uh, Nciardi is still nursing his, his aches and pains. Um, any chance that he can keep this up? His body of work, MLB career, 240 batting average, 319 on base, 351, 79 hard contact index, 57 expected power index, and 1,036 at-bats. Doesn't seem terribly likely to keep doing what he's been doing. But skills have been quite good over a very tiny sample. A 17% walk rate, 113 hard contact index, 306 expected batting average, 190 expected power index. So, uh, you know, there may be something there. And his 97.3 exit velocity on fly balls and line drives puts him in the vicinity of uh, J.D. Martinez and Vladimir Guerrero. Yeah, but Alain de Leonardis notes that exit velocities are really up across the league, and Heredia's mark stands out even in a turbocharged year is what he says, but let's keep in mind that his career average before this year was 88.2. And so the question arises for people like us, Nick, both as analysts and as fantasy managers, how much weight can we put on a small sample in a current year over the longer, more established levels, keeping in mind that there may have been something that he did in the offseason to change his swing, to put on weight and muscle. There's a lots, of, lots of variables in there that we really can't understand. And I guess the question is, how much do you think the benefit outweighs the risk? Yeah, I think that's what you have to put in, take, to take it into account at this point. Uh, I would certainly... Uh, Look at Diaz, we just talked about, ahead of Heredia, if I were looking for a waiver claim. Uh, but certainly a guy, I think, to keep, to keep your eye on at this point and see if he has done something that has elevated his game. And let's keep in mind, you mentioned this is a player who's 30 years old. Pache is a player who's 21 years old. So the team has a vested interest in seeing Pache succeed because, of course, the salary situations and the money situations are greatly tilted towards the team when you're talking about young players and greatly tilted toward the player as you get older and, and salaries start to rise. So the, uh, the Atlantic club has a very significant interest in seeing Pache succeed, and that might be enough to tilt the balance, especially if Heredia happens to revert to form and start falling back into that sort of 
700 OPS instead of 1,400 OPS that he's been sporting of late. Uh, finally, Nick, uh, in Chicago, uh, Albert Alzale, a starting pitcher, another guy that Touts loved coming into the season, has an ERA over five. But Dan Marcus, covering the National League Central in playing time tomorrow, says there might be some upside here nonetheless. Yeah, there may indeed. In fact, we had an upside mark on Alzale in the forecaster, I believe. And his role heading into the season was in question largely due to his inability to find the strike zone consistently. A career 13% walk rate. Uh, we can't dismiss those concerns after his first three starts. Uh, fourth start on Thursday night was a bit better. I believe he, he struck out six in six innings and maybe walked only one or two. Uh, but he's increased his zone rate to 43.4% in line with the league average. Uh, unsustainable, but nevertheless, nevertheless encouraging 68% first pitch strike rate has led to a much more manageable walk rate thus far. 9% across the first 15 innings, uh, even better uh, on Thursday night. Uh, making his improvements a bit more believable is the fact that he's made clear changes to his pitch mix. Uh, being less reliant on his fastball, uh, turned more to his sinker and slider, which has simultaneously helped maintain a 40% ground ball rate, paired with a 14.9% swinging strike rate. The problem right now is he, he, even if he can maintain these skills improvement, he'll need to prove he can pitch well deep into games. Has yet to throw, and before Thursday night, uh, had yet to throw more than 83 pitches. Thursday night, I think, got up to 94, uh, got up to six innings. Previous high was only 5.1. So early skills growth should convince the Cubs to keep him in the rotation for the long term, giving him a chance to prove himself as a core part of that rotation moving forward. So, Certainly, if he's available in your league, someone to keep an eye on. Uh, there may be better, better initial choices out there, but uh, I think there may be something, something to look at. Certainly, in Edward Alzale. Yeah, I agree. And uh, unfortunately, the modern shape of fantasy baseball means that you're probably going to have to make that decision sooner rather than later. If you think he's going to work, you're going to have to get him on your roster now or shortly because uh, somebody else is going to step up because the, all of this information, which used to be kind of the preserve of the people in the know, has spread out far and wide. And everybody knows who Albert Alzelay is. Everybody knows his pedigree. Everybody knows what his potential was coming in. I don't think we're going to have the luxury of waiting and seeing for any significant amount of time before we have to kind of fish or cut bait. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on, on that. And uh, it may depend on the situation of can you, can you take Alzelay and put him on your bench for a while? Or do you have to put him immediately into your rotation? Uh, in which case, at this point, he could be a uh, he could be a detriment to ERA and WHIP. Yeah, that's it. You just don't know. So uh, every league has kind of somewhat different rules. Some of them have no bench length at all or very little. I played in a league for many years, and the, the league is still going, and there, there literally was no reserve list. You could put a guy on the DL if he was on the DL, but otherwise you had your active roster, and that was it. And so if that's the case, you're really rolling the dice on Adbert Alzelay. Now, most leagues I know nowadays have at least, you know, four reserve slots, but those reserve slots have value too. And chances are, if you have uh, want to make a grab at Adbert Alzelay, you're going to have to drop somebody off your reserve list. And while that may be a possibility, so a lot of guys have reserve lists that are full of guys that they want to use for streaming purposes or you know, because there's somebody hurt or something like that that they don't want to drop. It's it's a tough decision to make with these kind of borderline guys. It's interesting too. It is indeed. I think I would consider Alzale at this point as a 
as they would say in the uh, in the crime fighting world, a person of interest, but uh, maybe not someone to uh, to uh, arrest and, and put into your lineup immediately. <laughs> put them into a lineup and let's see if anybody identifies them. <laughs> there you go. All right, Nick. Thanks very much for helping us out this week with the news. And we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over to the American League we go and BaseballHQ.com columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Thanks, PD. Always good to be here. We start in Toronto, and I know people out there will think, that guy lives in Ontario, so he's always talking about Toronto. But in fact, we cover everything that comes across and try to... uh, focus on the things that have fantasy impact and certainly this does there's a lot of news in toronto this week the jays put uh, left-hander hyunjin ryu on the 10-day il he's got a right glute strain uh, pain in the posterior you might say they also recalled george springer from the il where he's had two different injuries and they demoted first baseman dh rowdy tellez to the team's alternate training site they also recalled a guy named travis bergen to take ryu's roster spot Man, this is a lot of things to parse out. How does it all work? No, come on. It's not. There's not actual news here. We're just talking about this because Toronto is the center of the universe, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are a bunch of ripples here, and you know, officially the transaction was you know Rio going on the DL uh, on the IL and Telez going to the minors. But the, the related move that got Telez to the alternate site was, of course, the return of George Springer, uh, who made his Toronto. Uh, debut right there in the leadoff spot in the Jays lineup finally on, I think it was Wednesday night. So, uh, you know, if we think back to where we were in the preseason and we were worried about, you know, when, when Springer signed and the Jays beefed up the lineup here, it really looked like a competition between Randall Grichuk and Telez to stay in the lineup as, you know, which one was going to get squeezed out. And that could, competition kind of played itself out through the month of April here while we were waiting for Springer. And what happened was Grichik won in a blowout, right? I mean, Grichik's been very good and Telez has been very bad. So that's kind of how we got to this point. Yeah. Telez has been a real disappointment. Uh, I think he's barely batting 200 if he's even at 200 on base percentage is well below 300 he's only got a couple of home runs maybe only one just a really disastrous start for Telez and and I think part of the reason is and I've we've talked about this before on the show last year when he finally seemed to be getting things really figured out it was partly or wholly because Dante Bichette was kind of a hitting guru, both for him and a couple of other guys on the team, including Kevin Biggio. And Bichette's not there anymore. I don't know where he went or what happened. Uh, I know the Jays are cheaping out all over the place insofar as, uh, you know, the, the things that happen on the side. So maybe they just didn't want to pay him or something. But, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen to Rowdy Tellez because he just doesn't seem to have any of the the attributes that really led to him having what looked like a breakout last year. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, there are a couple of, you know, there's always multiple layers to the team dynamic here. And I think the other bad sign for Telez is that I think we're seeing the early stages of the Vlad Guerrero breakout, right? And that matters just because with the Jays, Having the Springer injury and the Teoscar Hernandez injury, which we should all, you know, illness, which we should also cover here, but they have not in the month of April had to move Guerrero over to third base, which is something we thought that we would see 
at least sometimes during the course of the season. And that might have been one way for Telez to force himself in the lineup. But now with Guerrero absolutely raking, you know, three home runs the other night to really kick off the launch party here, but then also having only played for, for third base once in the season so far, I'm not sure they're going to want to mess with what's working there, which really closes off another avenue for Telez if we're going to anchor Vlad at first base. And you mentioned the fact that Teoscar Hernandez is on the IL. He's got a bad COVID infection, and I guess according to the news, the aftermath of the infection has been very long in abating. And we know that happens with some guys, especially athletes, for some reason that's not, I don't think, fully understood. But Teoscar is supposed to be back sometime this week. I've heard as early as Friday, but sometime on the weekend maybe. And when he comes back and presuming that they want his bat in the lineup as well, which makes them a lot stronger, all of a sudden now not only is Telez completely shoved out of the picture, but we're back where we were at the start of the year, wondering what goes on with Grichuk and uh, and Lourdes Gurriel, who's been struggling, and, uh, and uh, Kevin Biggio has been struggling. There's a, still a lot of moving parts here, and I don't think that this whole issue is going to be settled right away we really have to keep a close eye here that's right there there are you know, Tolez is not the only one who's at risk he sort of was the first domino to fall the first one to you know for lack of a better description play himself out of a job but you're quite right that you know Biggio should be looking over his shoulder although his defensive vulner def- defensive flexibility probably gives him more paths to playing time and Guriel as well for sure uh you know, there's going to be uh there are going to be some paths to keeping the likes of you know Joe Panic in the lineup if Biggio and Guerrero and Guriel excuse me are not hitting on a regular basis. And it may just be that the, the depth of getting Tioscar back gives them the opportunity to give those guys a couple of days at a bench to work on some things and watch some video and, you know, clear their heads as we see teams do from time to time. But, uh, you know, it is interesting with the Tioscar situation because, like you said, it seems like he was really sapped by the infection and sort of the first, the, the key indicator of that was I saw a note that he was actually cleared from an infection basis to return to the Jays and start participating in team activities like last Friday. And for guys who had no symptoms or, you know, were ready to go. I, I, Altuve is an example. I think, you know, he was, uh, you know, he, he was laid up for the 10 days, but felt fine all the time. And, you know, it was kind of the minute he was cleared to come back, they activated him. But meanwhile, with Tioscar here, he was cleared last Friday and, you know, as going on a week later here, he hadn't been activated yet. And that just goes to show you that, you know, he may have been cleared of infection, but he wasn't fully healthy. He wasn't at full strength. You know, he lost a bunch of, uh, you know, endurance and, you know, being in shape and, you know, he needs some time to build that back up. You know, he's presumably working out at the alternate site and doing cardio and those sorts of things, but it just indicates that, you know, maybe we shouldn't necessarily expect him to hit the ground running when he does get activated. There might be a couple of early days off in the lineup and that, that, that sort of thing. And just to give everybody an idea of the, uh, nature of the Jays rostering issues. Uh, we have two players here, one with a 207 average, one at 197 uh, on base percentage, 207, 234, slugging 310, 254. Both of these players are not really rosterable in a major league situation. The first one is Teoscar. The second one is Lourdes Gurriel. And Bichette's not far behind, although his on base percentage, because he draws a lot of walks, is a snipped ab- ab- above 300, I think about 308 or so. But his batting average is 197. And I should point out, one of the advantages of living in the Toronto Blue Jays media environment is that Biggio hurt his hand 
about a week or 10 days ago or so, uh, he was trying to field a bouncing ball when he was playing third base and he tried to barehand it and it was hit harder than he thought and it bent back like the three or four fingers on his right hand as he was trying to grab it. And he's been complaining of an inability to grip the bat tightly and that's he says that's getting better. Had a couple of hits the other night. So uh, this is definitely a fluid situation. Could be a buying opportunity if you think that some of these guys are underpriced or if they've been dropped for any reason. Uh, you know, anybody who replaced Kevin Biggio with Joe Panic on in their lineup uh, probably made a panic move. I hate to <laughs> use the pun, but... Uh, <laughs> Joe Panic historically is not as good a hitter as Kevin Biggio, so if Biggio's floating around, this might be a time to take a take a gamble on him. Although he's another guy who had uh, the uh, Dante Bichette influence taken away from him in this offseason. I'm just disappointed he didn't make a panic at the disco joke there, Peter. All right. Well, uh, th- there's plenty to panic about here. I mean, if you look up and down the Jays lineup, even with the return of Springer, he DH'd in his, that first game on Wednesday, still not playing the field, and I guess they're going to ease him into that. But, boy, there's a lot of players on, in this lineup that have really poor performance so far, starting with Danny Jansen. He's batting 045. Oh, yeah. Alejandro Kirk's only at 200. You know, uh, we mentioned Tellez, but... We mentioned Biggio, but there's some pretty weak OPSs in this lineup, uh, you know, 600s, 400s, 500s. It's pretty bad. For sure. And we were so optimistic about, you know, obviously there's been some attrition here, but we've been so optimistic about this lineup being one that would be a place where you could find some hitters getting off to a hot start just because they're playing in Dunedin as their home park. And, you know, it's Florida in April and so many other teams are, you know, you have so many other hitters on our rosters who are trying to play in Cleveland and Chicago and Pittsburgh and wherever else in April. And you expect the slow start in 35 degree weather, but these guys had the benefit of starting out down in Florida in that ballpark that, you know, had some favorable dimensions and we had such higher hopes for all of these guys. Yeah, another name that jumps out now is Marcus Semien. He's only batting two twenty, yep. I think, his OPS is well under seven hundred. So, yeah, a lot a lot of issues still to be settled in Toronto, and uh, they better settle them because it's a tough division to play in. They were counting on bashing their way into contention because their pitching staff is not the, all that tremendous. Although Stephen Matz has looked really good and Ryu's looked good, but now he's got a store bomb. So, you know, you never know what's going to go on there. Keep an eye on it, I guess, is the best we can say. Uh, a couple of big name hitters, uh, we were talking about Teoscar on this COVID injury list. Uh, a couple of big name hitters were sent to the 10-day injured list with flu-like symptoms. Uh, Chicago White Sox outfielder Luis Robert and uh, Houston DH Jordan Alvarez, one with flu-like symptoms, the other undisclosed. These can be euphemisms for anything from a hangover to a full-on COVID-19 infection. So, Ray, how should we as fantasy managers deal with announcements like these? Yeah, I, you know, um, there's a there's a lot to unpack here, too. And I think right off the top, the first thing I want to do is I want to you know say that as annoying it is as it can be for the fantasy managers, I mean, I think MLB's actually done a really good job here in creating some roster flexibility. I mean, you think about what you know people like you and I are told, Patrick, like, if you don't feel good, don't come to work, right? And I think MLB's kind of saying the same thing, but creating some flexibility for teams to give players that kind of flexibility. And it's important to note, that it's actually an issue I'm taking up with our news feed provider this morning because these Robert and Alvarez, as I read it, were not placed on the 10-day DL. They were placed on the COVID list, the COVID IL, which is not 
doesn't have a 10 day minimum and they use it for a bunch of, you know, COVID related catch all sort of things from the scenario I'm talking about where like, you know, just don't come to work today if you don't feel good to, of course, the positive tests and the close contacts. We've, we've actually seen the list used for very brief absences for people who have the vaccination reaction too. I know Jake McGee was one who took you know, two days last weekend because he had the adverse reaction to the vaccine. Um, JD Martinez is another one that missed a game uh, the first or second weekend of the season just because, you know, he wasn't feeling well, you know, ended up being a cold or something, but the Red Sox threw him on the list for one day just to, you know, get a couple of additional test results in. And it's good because, you know, obviously the teams that are playing at home have access to replacements from the alternate site, but road teams are carrying sort of a five-man taxi squad on the road so that they've also got immediate access immediate access to a replacement player if they decide to do this for a day or two what i'm reading is actually that robert is coming right back into the lineup uh after a one-day absence alvarez we don't know yet um alvarez obviously missed i think it was the full 10 days a week or two ago after he was a close contact with the uh those five astros who all got put on the COVID list, which I think I'll trace back to the Altuve infection. Altuve was the one who was actually testing positive and then Bregman and Maldonado and Jordan Alvarez all got tabbed as close contacts and had to sit out. So that list is flexible and it's, it's one of these situations where it's tough, you know, when the news first breaks to figure out what category the player figures into some, you know, some reporters are shaking that information loose. Some, some beat writers and others aren't other teams are playing it closer to the vest. But, you know, I think the important thing to realize is if you get the note that it's the COVID list and not the 10 day list, it might end up being 10 days, but it might end up being less too. Yeah. And as you said, it could even be just a day or two while they sort things out. I know that the official rules in Major League Baseball say that a player can only be placed on that COVID-19 list if there's consent from something called the COVID-19 Joint Health and Safety Committee. And of course, anytime you've got a committee, you know you're in good shape. So, uh, you know, (laughs) bureaucratically speaking, I'm glad they're looking after that. But I have to say, so far from just watching which kind of players have got on that list for whatever reasons. I think they're being pretty liberal about what constitutes a suspicion of COVID-19. Yeah. And like I said, though, that I'm not so sure that's a bad thing because, you know, the MLB's nightmare scenario is, you know, the, what happened to the Nats or what happened to the Astros where they lose five guys for 10 days. And if they say, you know, they'd rather have J.D. Martinez or Luis Robert just stay at the hotel for a day. Don't even report to the ballpark if you don't feel good. And we'll send over a clubby to swab your nose and we'll send it out for uh, for testing. And we'll, you know, don't come back until we tell you it's okay. That, you know, th- that avoids the five guys quarantined for 10 days each and, you know, 50, 50 man games lost. I think that's, uh, you know, that's what MLB is trying to minimize. And we've had a couple of those so far, but hopefully as more and more players are getting vaccinated, even that occurrence goes to zero pretty soon. I'm just hoping they're sending somebody a little more qualified than a clubby to do that. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> that nasal swab. Cause I've had one and it's distinctly unpleasant. I had a medical doctor do it and it's no fun. And also you want to make sure it's done right because if it's yeah, not done right, then you start running the risk of a false negative because the guy didn't have the, you know, knowledge to stick that thing way up there where it needs to be or whatever the, 
whatever the case might be, and uh, as a result might get uh, some skewed tests. So I, I, I imagine they probably require that it be done by a medical professional. And we should know, too, that if you go on the COVID list, you can't get off until you've taste, tested negative twice, not just once. Oh, okay. So, yeah. And I wonder how much of that is, uh, you know, what, I'm sure there's a... Uh, 24 hour distance between those tests or something like that. You can't just, you know, bang out two in 15 minutes and say, and say you're clear. That's exactly right. Uh, moving on, uh, the Minnesota bullpen has been somewhat in disarray the last week or 10 days because Alex Colome just can't get anybody out. And after several awful outings, he's got an 831 ERA. His whip is somewhere right around two. The Twins finally put him out of his and our misery and removed him from the closer role for now. The obvious beneficiary looks like Taylor Rogers, but our baseball HQ analysts say we need to be mindful of other possibilities in Rocco Baldelli's bullpen management. How's that work? Yeah, so sort of the central tension here involves the way Baldelli wants to manage his bullpen, where he you know, is at the forefront of the group of managers who want to play matchups and will have a different closer for different situations or will use their best relievers at the time of the game where they think they need them, not necessarily just in the ninth. So Rogers being left-handed is always at prone to being called on in the seventh or the eighth if that's where the big lefty bats are. And then that was going to be the beauty of having column A behind him is that column A could just, if you went to Rogers early, column A would just be there to close. Of course, column A is only there with a gas can right now, which kind of undermines that whole plan. Um, but, you know, in theory, what I would expect to see is that Baldelli is going to want to turn somewhere else for that right-handed compliment if he wants to call on Rogers early. The problem is there isn't really any right-handed pitcher throwing all that well in the in that Twins bullpen right now. The next candidate you would think would be Tyler Duffy, but uh, if you look at his game log, he's got a very obvious command and control problem right now. I think he's had something like nine appearances and he's issued a walk in seven of them or something like that, which is just, uh, you know, not exactly what you want to see for somebody you're considering for the ninth inning. So until, you know, he, he's got a track record of skills that make him well suited to that. And I would have thought he was sort of the third in line here, even, uh, you know, before the season started, but that's, he's not going to get back in that role until he demonstrates that he's got his, uh, issues worked out that leaves Hansel Robles who you might remember had 20 something saves for the uh the Angels back in 2019 and he's been more effective but you know still not super impressive this year he's got a BPV of 84 which is just about average and his uh you know he's striking out 27% of the batters he faces which isn't bad but he's also got a 12% walk rate which is too high and that nets out to a 15% K minus BB, which is below average, let alone below closer standards. So, I mean, if you, keep, you can keep going down this bullpen and uh, Jorge Alcala looks like he might be interesting, but he's sort of a writing specialist. He's been dominating from the right side. Caleb Fieldbar from the left side has also been highly effective, but those guys are more specialists. And I'm not sure with the three batter minimum, you want to get them into a situation where they're on the mound in the night and exposed to pinch hitters. So, you know, long way around to saying, you know, this is probably Rogers's job due to lack of a threat, but you want to keep a, keep an eye on these right-handers because Baldelli will, pr- if Baldelli gets confidence in one of them, they could, could start picking up at least situational saves pretty quickly. 
And they're really uh, also short of left-handed alternatives in the bullpen, so they can't they can't give the job full time to uh, to Taylor Rogers because then they don't have any you know dynamite left-hander to deal with that left-handed situation in the eighth. Yeah, that's right. Thielbar has been has been pretty decent, but he's he's very much more than Rogers exposed versus righties. So you got to pick the spots way more carefully. And Alcala, I know some people must look at this guy and say, how does a guy with an 063 whip manage to ring up a 450 ERA? And it's home runs. He's been giving up home runs, three, I think, in 29 batters faced. And he's given up 10 percentage points more hard contact this year than last. And the reason I know this is because as soon as I heard the news, I started looking at who I might want to look at for fab this weekend. And uh, frankly, I don't want to look at any of them because it just seems too risky. Yeah, I mean, if you know, if you're Rocco Baldelli and you're looking at anybody not named Rogers, and you're you're basically like got two lists, like the list of guys who are walking too many and the list of guys who are giving up too many home runs. It's it's not a great situation. Yeah, Taylor Rogers, Roy Rogers, Mister Rogers, <laughs> bring me anybody with these guys. Uh, on to Texas, the Rangers finally cut bait on outfielder Lourdes Tavares and gave his playing time to Adolis Garcia who has started the season with five homers in his first 63 plate appearances, which is a 50-home run pace for a full season. I'm not suggesting that he's going to hit 50 home runs this year, but in my TGFBI league, Ray, uh, he went for more than 15% of our $1,000 fab allotment, and I don't think this excitement is warranted, but what do you say? Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's a, there's a lot... To there's a lot going on with Garcia, and you know, in some sense, the the power outburst is justified in that he's hitting a lot of balls hard. Um, you know, he's got five home runs, but it's not a case where he's just picking up a couple of favor, favorable gusts of wind, etc. Uh, you know, his barrel rate numbers are by Statcast are quite high, and uh, you know, he's hitting the he's hitting the ball in the air a decent amount of time, so that's all plausible from the power perspective, but he's also striking out 35% of the time and only walking 5% of the time. So he's not exactly demonstrating command of the strike zone, and it shouldn't be too much longer before opposing pitchers realize that, you know, if they groove one down the middle, he's going to unload on it, but it's about time that we start throwing them some, uh, you know, breaking stuff away and out of the strike zone and get them chasing because he's also demonstrating that he is, uh, he's vulnerable to that. So Tavares getting out of the way really says that, you know, they're going to, the Rangers are going to take a longer look at him, and why shouldn't they? Because Garcia's actually been hitting, and Tavares, you know, earned every bit of that demotion by hitting, uh, you know, what did he, but by hitting 087, I was actually looking at the chart here and I'm like 87, that's not a batting average. Oh, but it is. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) and you know, with the minor league season starting pretty soon now, we're going to, you know, you can certainly imagine that Tavares needs to get some reps there and, uh, you know, maybe work out whatever the issue is there. So he might be back, you know, in a month or something like that after a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks of minor league games, if he gets straightened out, but that's, uh, you know, we just cleared the runway for Garcia here, basically. Yeah. Garcia, you said he puts the ball in the air a fair amount. It's only around 35% this season. I think it was 50 in the short season last year, but only in a handful of plate appearances. He hits a lot of ground balls. And I've seen other players in Major League Baseball, Ray, who have that big-time power when they get the ball in the air. The problem is they don't get it in the air as often as they need to to maintain a consistent level of home run production, uh, runs produced, those kinds of things. Uh, Right now, Adolis Garcia is looking at 36% fly ball 
a home run per fly ball rate, and we know that's not sustainable even for the oh, Joey yeah. Gallows of the world. At 36% home run per fly is roughly double where we might expect him to settle unless he's uh, unless he's a Joey Gallo, like you said, and I think that's probably a little bit too optimistic. So, uh, yeah, if, if going back to your TGFBI league, and I certainly saw a bunch of leagues this weekend where he went for you know greater than 10% of the uh, available fab, you know, one hundred plus dollar bids on the thousand out of the thousand dollar budget. Uh, I'd be pumping the brakes on that for sure. Staying in the Lone Star State, Ray, the Houston Astros placed right-hander Jake Odorizzi on the ten-day injured list. He's got a pronator muscle strain. The team recalled a right-hander named Peter Solomon from the alternate training site. Jock Thompson says in playing time today, we expected this IL stint when Odorizzi left his game on Saturday. Uh, just after five pitches. What's the latest on that news? Yeah, so the, the the news from the GM the day after the start was actually relatively optimistic that it was a uh, it was a cramp or something minor in the arm and not the, the the sort of dreaded forearm strain that might be the Tommy John precursor or at least cause him to cause Odorizzi to get shut down for you know six to eight weeks and go back to step one of a of a throwing program that could have knocked him out for you know a couple of months net here. He's on the DL, but it sounds like it's at least a wait and see situation where if he you know goes and throws on the side and doesn't feel this in a week or two, he could be back relatively quickly. Um, I, I don't think the worst case scenario is off the table yet, but at least we didn't go right to worst case scenario. Um, as far as who takes his rotation spot, that that can, that game where he left after five pitches was among the most amazing things I've seen where um, Kent Emanuel came in and just calmly stepped on the mound after those five pitches and fired eight and two thirds innings and picked up the win. You know, that's, uh, that's some quality relief. It reminds me of the, uh, the story from a hundred years ago where um, Babe Ruth came in for a pitcher who got ejected on the first batter of the game and Ruth promptly went and threw a no hitter. <laughs> it wasn't quite Kent Emanuel. wasn't that, but it was, it was shades of that, you know, <laughs> Did it count? <laughs> you know, we, we <laughs> well, ask Madison Bumgarner, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, uh, it, it should, but it probably didn't. Uh, uh, Emmanuel gave up two runs in that in that game against the Angels. Looked really good. Uh, Matt Cedarholm reported in the Big Hurt his injury column that a flexor pronator strain like Odorizzi has can be a precursor to uh, something wrong in the elbow, a UCL strain or worse. And it's usually just a muscle strain and doesn't appear to be all that severe. But uh, Matt says there's a decent risk of recurrence problems, complications, and he put a tag of elevated risk on Odorizzi. So take for take that for what it's worth in your roster planning. Speaking of Matt Cedarholm and elevated risk in Los Angeles, Shohei Otani trying very hard to be both a pitcher and a hitter. Now another problem, a complication in the form of a blister. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because this is something I'm even trying to police myself on a little bit. Uh, you see a news about a blister, and you're like, I'll blister, no big deal, you know go stick your hand in some pickle juice and you'll be fine. Uh, but that's, uh, but you know, he's uh, Matt here is sort of correctly pointing out, you know, I, I think something that, you know, kind of dovetails with the conversation you and I had here a week or two ago about the challenges of trying to manage Otani as a two-way player. And 
that you know I, these blister issues just don't go away, and they're already it's just one more thing the Angels have to manage now and trying to figure out when, how, and for how long to get Otani on the mound. And Matt has you know similar guidance here to what we were saying for Odorizzi. He's saying that you know this blister issue is now makes Otani high risk until he goes a while without having a recurrence of the problem. You know, it just takes so long for that skin to fully grow back and get stronger and not be so fragile on the point where he's putting it on the, putting his finger on the seam or the ball or wherever the, you know, the friction point is, but that's, it's not something that's just going to go away if they skip a start or something like that. And, you know, like, like I said, they're already having, you know, juggling so many considerations and figuring out how to keep Otani on the mound for every, uh, every fifth, sixth, seventh day that, uh, you know, it just seems, it just sort of seems to me like, as good as Otani has looked at times on the mound, it's just the the uh, the trade-offs and headaches that come along with that are just getting harder and harder to manage. In the offseason, we heard an awful lot about how they were changing the baseball, and one of the things we heard was that there had been a change in, this, in the seam height to create drag and all of these kind of things. I don't know whether any of it turned out to be true, but my thought at the time was every time they mess with the seams, it seems like we have a bit of a burst of... Uh, blister issues because the seams rub the skin a little harder or a little differently and all of a sudden these guys start getting blisters we haven't seen that much of it this year at least i haven't heard of any no not a lot you know there were some comments in spring training about we might have even talked about this i forget who the pitcher was off the top of my head but you know there was at least one pitcher who you know grabbed the ball and was like oh yeah i feel the difference you know in the seams or the you know, the weight the whole thing so i mean the pitchers i think are detecting the problem or the difference but you're right that it has widely seemed to not cause the blister problems that we talk about yet but then keep in mind with Otani the other thing is I mean in some sense he's still getting used to the ball over here and the differences between that ball and Japan you know for as long as he's been over here now for you know going back to 2018 so for four years now for his career he's still big league career he's still only got 67 innings pitched so you know to some sense you know just the the american ball probably still feels somewhat foreign to him let alone the fact that we're changing the american ball seemingly every year so uh you know probably not surprising that if there is going to be sort of a canary in the coal mine for you know ball you know detecting changes to the ball and the effect on the finger that otani might be one of them a change in the ball seemingly every year i see what you did there oh yeah you see what i did there (laughs) Uh, one of the most important things fantasy managers need to be on top of in modern fantasy baseball, given the changes in the information availability and stuff, is monitoring minor leaguers and seeing what happens uh, when they come up and what you want to do about it because you have to make decisions oftentimes under a lot of time pressure. And uh, one of the greatest tools, I think, at BaseballHQ.com, ready to handle this is the daily call-ups reports. Anytime a player gets called up from the minor leagues, the his daily call-up report goes onto the site and it's very comprehensive. It kind of summarizes everything that we've written about that player in the course of his prospect coverage. And a couple of pitchers made the daily call-ups reports this week that I'd like to talk about. And the first one I think is the more interesting. Right-hander Davey Garcia goes to the Yankees lineup an 8B prospect in Baseball HQ's ranking system. That means he has a ceiling of being a solid regular, you know, a kind of a number two, number three starter, and a 70% chance of making that level. Uh, what do we know from the report and from our own experience about Davey Garcia, and how interested should we be in him as we start thinking about this weekend's fab? 
Yeah, boy, I I need to start by echoing your praise of the Daily Call-Ups column. I mean, I obviously read everything on the site every day, but I lean on the Daily Call-Ups column as heavily as anything on the site. I mean, I'm not uh, a prospect wonk to the extent that the guys who write the call-ups column are, or even that Brent is, uh, you know, my co-GM who I sort of leave the minors to. I know who the big names are, but I kind of use the daily call-ups column as sort of my filter for here's a new, here's a new name I need to learn about and what do I need to know about them? And in terms of the, what do I need to know about them? These guys consistently hit the mark with, you know, giving me the full background and making it seem like I've been tracking these guys for years after reading a couple of sentences about them they do they, do, they just do great work and you know they also do a nice job of trying to dovetail into the context that the player is being called up in and what their role is going to be uh you know the garcia news broke uh last weekend that he was going to start on monday and thus get a two-start week this week which was you know if the fab frenzy wasn't already going to be there just because we've seen garcia in the majors before and because he's a yankee and all these things the two-start week really just took it to another level um as far as what we think about him like you said you know he's rated as an ap prospect and the call-up report broke down you know what he did last year which was pretty good for his first time around the league you know he he got um and then this spring he was you know mowing down people with the strikeouts but was showing some uh some walks some issues with walks too which is what got him sent to the alternate site but he throws four pitches you know he's not a velocity king you know this isn't uh you know 98 99 100 mile per hour but um the low to mid nineties fastball, uh, which he moves around up and down, especially, but you know, he has a very good slider with, uh, you know, with, with good break on it mixes in a change up and, you know, a token curveball too, but that's a, it's a mix that, you know, this is not somebody who's at risk of going to the settling in as a reliever long term. This is someone who's going to be a starter. Um, and obviously, you know, the Yankees have struggled so far, especially offensively. But you would think as the weather gets warmer that this is a good team context for wins and that sort of thing. So there's, you know, there's a lot of reason to be interested in Garcia. Number 62 prospect on the preseason HQ100 prospects list and the number two in the Yankees organization. And they said he has the potential to be a number three starter. He's going to be a number five starter, of course, in New York for now. But I think that uh, we're going to see some pretty hefty bidding on Davey Garcia this weekend as people scramble around trying to find any kind of pitching, as do their major league counterparts. Also in the call-ups, another pitcher, this one I think less interesting, at least to me, Baltimore left-hander Zach Lowther. Yeah, and I agree, less interesting. But again, this is where the call-up report provides the value for me because I got to make that conclusion, right? Uh, and, you know, right from the first sentence, they say crafty lefty. And I'm like, okay, probably all I need to know. Crafty lefty, bad team context in Baltimore. You know, he might hang around and, you know, take some regular turns on a rotation. He's up as the long man right now in the bullpen. He's not expected to join the rotation right away. That could change later in the summer, either, either as the Orioles have needs to to fill the back end of the rotation or if Lowther goes out and you know looks good in a couple of long relief outings they might decide to you know give him some more opportunity but that that's not in the cards just 
get. And then as you read more through the call-up report, you know, you see everything that you would think goes with crafty lefty, you know, an 89 to 92 mile an hour fastball, uh, you know, but because he's lefty and because he, you know, because he uses his delivery well, it kind of sneaks up on the batters and plays a little better than that. He sinks it, he moves it around, you know, this is the crafty lefty uh, profile in a nutshell. So, uh, and, and a good curveball that goes with it. So, uh, you know, I'm, Interested enough that I'd like to get some eyes on him if I'm clicking around MLB TV one night and he's on the mound, uh, just because uh, I don't know maybe I have a predilection for lefties with 12 to 6 curveballs or something like that. But uh, you know we'll we'll see what happens uh, you know later in the season. But uh, you know now he's on my radar, which is the purpose of the call up report. Yeah, they mentioned that curveball in particular, the 12 to 6 movement. But this is the kind of detail you get in the report. They say. The curveball doesn't tunnel as well as the two core offerings, fastball slider, which uh, fastball change, excuse me, and reduces its effectiveness. And I imagine most of our listeners know what they mean by that, but I'll just quickly explain that tunneling means the pitch seems to come from the same spot as all the other pitches. And if he has to alter the release point or alter the motion or something like that, it's a signal to the hitter that the curveball's coming, which really reduces its effectiveness compared to a guy who can throw the same delivery, the same tunnel with three or four pitches. It obviously keeps the hitters guessing much more. That's one of the reasons I love that column. Boy, oh boy. Uh, another column I love, Stephen Nickrand. He writes the Buyer's Guides columns for hitters and starters. This week, both of those columns are about slow start sells. These are guys that have started poorly and are not worth hanging on to. In Stephen's estimation, you need to try to sell them on the reputation. And one of those is last season's World Series sensation, Randy Rosarena. Yeah, and, you know, this is one of the things I give Stephen credit for is, you know, he... As you know, he he does these batters and pitchers, starting pitchers, buyers guides so well all the time. But one of the things I love about it is he did he does not steer away from taking a strong position, uh, and you know he d- doesn't care. I guess is the right way to put it about you know what the name the name value is of the player he puts into the column. If they make his criteria for whatever the list is, whether it's you know last week it was holds and this week it sells, you know. It, it, Randy Arozarena, yeah, I know what he did last October. I don't care. I'm telling you what I'd see right now, which I love. Um, just Steven just laying the facts on the table. And as always, it's, you know, it depends on your key team context. And you may come to a different conclusion, but Steven's going to tell you why he why he makes this list. And you can take that information and do what you need to do with it. And in this case, as good as Arozarena was last fall, and as much as that put Helium into his draft position this year, we're not seeing the same thing so far in April. You're, you know, he hasn't been bad. He's hitting 289 with three homers and 10 RBIs. But under the hood, Steven sees terrible plate discipline, 5% walk rate, 64% contact, which is just fairly horrifying, netting out to a, 0.01, a 0.15 I ratio. Um, and he's also pounding the ball into the ground. We were talking about this with some of the, uh, with uh, Garcia earlier. He's, Arozarena has got a 65% ground ball rate, which means you net all that together and you got to the right statistic earlier. You do the same thing with Arozarena. And if he's striking out a lot, hitting the ball on the ground a lot, he's still got three homers out of only 21% fly balls. That's a 30% home run per fly rate, which is not going to hold up. So either he's got to make more contact and loft the ball more, or if he keeps striking out and pounding the ball into the ground, he's not going to hit home runs, even at the rate he is now, which is just three home runs. 
Last week, our Friday full edition guest expert, Vlad Sedler, former Baseball HQ guy, uh, named Seattle outfielder Taylor Trammell as a Bane hitter, and Stephen Nickrand apparently agrees. What's the story with Trammell? He's bounced around a little bit as a prospect. You know, he went, as I remember, from Cincinnati to San Diego to Seattle. Uh, so you, you sort of wonder what a couple of people were selling there. Every time somebody was buying him, somebody was selling him, right? Um, but he was a, he was very much an end gamer this year with a you know six eleven ADP. But he snuck up to Seattle and is getting a decently long look that is not going well. He's hitting a buck fifty five with a six thirteen OPS. Um, Again, with the contact problems, this time a 52% contact rate, which means he's striking out 48% of the time, just a whopping number. And when he does make contact, he's not hitting the ball hard either. His exit velocity is a tick under 85 miles per hour. So that's all bad news. And whenever Jared Kelnick arrives, which you know might be soon, Trammell looks like the fairly obvious odd man out. That you know maybe maybe around the time when the minor league season starts, they're going to send Trammell back to get a bit, to get some at bats, and Kelnick's going to slide into that spot. I think. Over on the pitching side, Stephen also sells low on a guy that a lot of touts liked coming into this season: White Sox starter Dylan Cease. It's been a case where. All the things we wanted to see with Cease that would have made him a candidate to take, take a step forward just haven't been there. Uh, it's a tiny sample size, and you know he's getting sort of bab bab to death. He's got a thirty six percent hit rate against him, which is you know certainly blowing up the whip. But his BPV is a minus four, which is just bleak. Fourteen uh, percent walk rate is undermining everything, uh, and that's backed up you know the walk rate is backed up by ball percentage which is a you know sub indicator that we use that steven actually helped develop to you know validate walk rates and he's throwing 40 percent balls and 60 percent strikes so yeah you would expect you know that <laughs> you would expect walks to come out of that mix uh so there's you know we still love the arm but there's just no evidence that things are suddenly about to click into place and you know i'll, I'll be curious to see what happens again and then you know to beat the same drum in a couple of weeks when they can send him out for a couple of starts in the minors to maybe work on some things if they don't avail themselves of that option. When I look through Dylan Cease's track record and we say, you know, 2021, he's only had four starts, it's only 17 innings, let's, you know, calm down and, and let things work out. But this year has been eerily similar to both of the previous two years, both 2019 when he had uh, 14 games and 70-some innings, and last year he had 58 innings. And the numbers are virtually identical. So I think at a certain point you have to say this is who he is and react accordingly. And depending on your roster and league format and structure, maybe Dylan Cease isn't a sell low, but uh, Stephen seems to think he is, and I think Stephen's right. Uh, the problem is going to be finding a buyer. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's you know, it, it's not a case where you know this is somebody who has in the past demonstrated even glimpses of pinpoint control, and now you think there might be a you know mechanical adjustment or an arm slot thing. He might be one tweak away. If he's one tweak away, it's a tweak that neither he nor the team has figured out in pretty much the course of his entire career. So it's kind of hard to expect it to just suddenly click into place. Yeah, sometimes I think uh, when Steven says sell low, he basically just means drop and, and move on. Exactly. Uh, back to Seattle for Steven's other slow start and sell, uh, Justice Sheffield, another guy that the touts were in on coming into the season. Yeah, but, and by the touts, you must mean me because I have a ton of Justice Sheffield and I'm losing confidence start over start. Uh, you know, much like Steve's, you know, we're talking about very small samples here. He's got a 46 ERA that's just in 16 innings pitched, but. 
it's uh, the, the the headline here is the K minus BB ratio that is just thirteen percent, which is you know well below what we want to see from a starting pitcher. Plus, he's getting hit hard too, so he's not striking out enough guys. He's walking too many, and when he does throw the ball in the strike zone, he's getting tagged to the tune of uh, ninety point four mile per hour exit velocity, which. No surprise is also means the boss more often than, than we would like landing on the other side of the fence. So overall flammable mix here. And I'm a little more optimistic than I am with C's just because we've seen, you know, we've seen better from Sheffield Sheffield in particular at the end of last year, he finished up the season pretty strong, but uh, something's missing right now. Yeah, and his last start actually made the numbers that you cited even worse. He went five innings and a third, I think, four in runs. Everything going the wrong way with Justin she- Justice Sheffield. I think now might be the time to cut bait. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out with all of this kind of stuff. Do appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. It'll be May by then. Looking forward to it. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola for Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and Sirius XM. Lord Lord Zola Zola returns returns. next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out from the morning. Take me out with the crowd. HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola for Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, Sirius XM. Todd, welcome back. Looking forward to it, PD. It's always great talking to you and the, the fine folks, HQ and the listeners. And Todd, I did find out during the break that uh, the CSW metric, the SW stands for whiffs, called strikes and whiffs. And what counts okay. as a whiff is any swinging strike that's missed, uh, swinging pitch out and foul tips, but not foul balls. So anybody who is out there thinking that they were going to look that up, you don't have to now. It's uh, called strikes plus whiffs, which is a swing that doesn't result in a, a ball basically leaving the general area of home plate. Right, and that, that fine tune makes it it makes the entire it makes CSW slightly more predictive than swing strikes alone which is what we're looking for exactly you know right. and I, I I joked about this to a friend and, and Alex fast is wonderful for doing this and he's a great ambassador but is it to me this is like so obvious that I was like darn it why didn't I think of that I wouldn't yeah. look as good on TV as Alex did but sometimes you know sometimes the most obvious you know and, and it's just uh and, you know again congrats kudos you should have him on. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting little metric. You're the commissioner of the Tout Wars American League. You're a member of the uh, committee that oversees all of Tout Wars along with Jeff Erickson and Ron Chandler and, uh, Ryan Walton and Peter Kreutzer. So you guys are the, are the governing body of Tout Wars. And one of the, in addition to being the, the statistician and league commissioner for Tout AL and a player in your own right, you organize a weekly tout table, an online questionnaire that you have all the touts or as many of them as can find the time. And you ask them an interesting question about the state of fantasy baseball and how they're doing certain things or how we should do certain things. Where do you get the ideas for the questions? Yeah, so part of the responsibility of being a tout is helping to promote the game 
and one of the vehicles we use is to do this tow table. And I, tr you know, we've got, I think it's 94, man, 94 touts at this point. That's a lot. That's a pretty, that's a, a, a pretty nice collection of, of mines and, 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 you know, dissecting, uh, a, you know, a, a bunch of different, you know, per, you know, types of people and, and ideas and mindsets. So I, I think we can get, we get some really cool, uh, cross section of answers. And I think we'd be foolish if we didn't try to, to extrapolate stuff out from the, from those 94 mines. Uh, as far as where I get the questions, um, <laughs> I'm laughing because the last two, I'll be honest, the last two were generated because I, like, like selfishly, I have, they were more of general kind of, I don't know, theoretical or philosophical type questions and a couple things I was wrestling with. So it's kind of like, well, you know what? I'm gonna, I if you know you you wanna you wanna find the answer out, you start a you start a column up. I, this is my column. I'm gonna I'm gonna get the answers myself. But usually, what I try to do is, I want to think of a question. And you're a teacher, so you know it's kind of that idea where sometimes you ask a question for a test, and like you don't get the answer you were looking for, but it's right. I mean, it's not quite the same thing. But I try to come up with a question that the answers are not obvious and they're somewhat varied. So it's useful to the reader. So they don't read the first three answers, and go, ah, whatever. I try to come up with questions that we get some different takes, some interesting takes. Uh, not so successful in a couple this year. It just happened to be, I, I thought the answers would be different, but everybody agreed, but that's okay. Uh, that's the way it works out. But I, I try to mix it up between uh, player analysis, um, game theory, um, approach, you know, commissioners type stuff. I try to, I try to mix it up uh, along those lines. A little, a little of everything, because I want to make, I want everybody to have a, I want to have everybody feel comfortable uh, answering. I want to have something in their wheelhouse so that they could, they feel comfortable answering that particular week. But um, take requests. I don't. I'm, I'm still. I'm now. I'm now at the end. And at the end of my rope. I usually comes to me as I'm working. Uh, I don't. I don't know what next question is going to be, but that's okay because I haven't posted this week's piece yet. It'll come to me over the weekend, or maybe somebody could uh, send a tweet out yeah. your way uh, at Todd Zola. You want to tag Todd in a tweet and say, "Listen, I yeah, got a question in my please. league. I got a question about a player. Uh, I got uh, probably not individual players. It gets a little granular for asking nineteen guys for an opinion about that. But uh, take a look at the tout table and uh, and read a few past ones and see what kind of questions are getting asked. And feel free to ask a question. Uh, one of the questions you asked Todd to start off this year's tout tables was uh, you asked the touts what was the biggest surprise they'd seen so far, not counting individual players, but looking at the big picture. What did you hear from these uh, ninety-four guys and girls? Yeah, I think. Uh yeah, you're right, girls. We've got, I think we're up to three, three, three females in the group at this point. And we'd like to welcome more if, if, if you know anybody who's eligible, you know, ready. All right. Um, my own answer, and I kind of, I, I already talked about it, was all the fret about the pitchers. Uh, you know, two starts and 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 that stuff. It just, it just wasn't coming through, coming through to fruition. Some of the people they they mentioned injuries. They they talked about just this, not just the COVID nineteen related cases, but just the sheer number of of injuries into star players. And I know people are looking into this too. And, and, and you know, people are trying to ascertain why why are there more injuries? Is it something that is it training? Is it uh, is it something people are you know? Is there something that 
can be done to prevent some of these things. And I don't know what the answers are. Uh, I'm not sure what the answer, you know, if, they, if they're coming up, but I just know that it, there's so many that, that people are looking into it. And there, I think people were also talking about uh, some of the early, early, you know, the people were talking about the strikeouts, um, but there was, uh, they weren't, this one, there were, there was a wide, there weren't, I, I thought there would be more, a bigger variety than there, than, 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 than there ended up being. So, but that's, you know, I think there was enough there that it, it gave people stuff to think about and stuff to kind of track or follow, uh, you know, going forward. I thought it was a, an interesting question to ask. And I noticed that the discussion about injuries and not just in the tout table, but I've heard this discussion on podcasts. I listen to a lot of fantasy baseball uh, yeah. podcasts and radio shows and what have you. And it seems like the narrative became 2020 was a short season. 2021 has had a lot of injuries. Therefore, it is scientifically proven that the short season caused the injury. <laughs> and I just don't I just don't think it's so, but it certainly has become a very strong narrative. Uh, you asked a, another question, Todd, about uh, people's policy with respect to revealing another person's offer when you're in trade negotiations. And uh, that got a, an interesting discussion going. Yeah, so this is, I kind of referred to before, is where I thought, I thought there'd be more varied of an answer because the first I, I posted it on Twitter and to get sort of a group source there. And I, 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 I put my three choices, something like, um, you know, I, I, I will reveal if I will reveal. And what I'm talking about is if we're making a trade, I'll say, PD, uh, you know, uh, you know, Jason Collette's going to give me Mike Trout. You've got to beat that. And, you know, do, I, do you actually name players? in trade, you know, in, in trade discussions. And I, I, I put it out there and the, the three responses were, I'll reveal if asked, I'll, I'll open, I'll just, I'll reveal at the beginning and it's none of their darn business. And it turned out to be about 50% would, would reveal in one, you know, maybe it wasn't, you know, whatever it would have been like 15 to 35%, you know, right off the bat. I don't know. But, but the point being about half the people, intimated that they would reveal the uh, the trade. And I found that interesting because I am in the, you know, it's uh, what's in my inbox, stays in my inbox or, you know, tout or I'm sorry, text or whatever, phone call. It's none of their business. I don't like to reveal that. And I was curious, do the touts agree? And it was almost unanimous that you don't reveal it. And maybe it's because they're going public and, you know, I don't know. Maybe if you, if it was an uh, uh, you know an uh, anonymous sort of thing, maybe the answers would have been different, at least based upon the the poll of Twitter. Or maybe it's just the mindset of, of people in the industry that they feel it shouldn't be revealed. Um, and I don't know that it's. I don't, I, to me, it's not a right or wrong. It's it's a philosophy, and it, it's just what one does. I don't think you're. I don't think it's right or wrong. It just I don't. I don't do it. Maybe because I think it's wrong. But if someone else did it. I mean, that's to me. It's just their philosophy. They're not a bad person, um, but it, it, that, that kind of did it did surprise me that I think Michael Beller from the Athletic, uh, in the, a new proud papa opportunity. Congratulations, Mike. Uh, are you know it, it was one of the few that said, "Sure, yeah, if I can make if I can get a better deal by revealing an offer, it's my responsibility to my team to get the best deal I can." So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna reveal it, and I, I guess I'm a little surprised that there weren't more that said that. Um, and I still to this, I, you know what? I'm still not sure 
Because I believe that. I believe it's your it's your job to get the best offer for your team. And if you if you reveal it, so be it. But the problem is, there's a you know there's a there's a reaction for every reaction, whatever. And if it irritates the rest of the league and it hurts your chances to make more trades by doing it, you know, for the greater good, you know, you win that trade, but you lose the war. So I think that's the sort of conundrum at this point. Yeah, when I was thinking about it, one of the things, one of the reasons I don't think I would do it under most circumstances, well, there's a couple. I think there's an ethical breach if you talk, if you take a private conversation and make it public or pass yep. it along in some way. And the reason is uh, if Jason Collette says, uh, uh, I'll give you Mike Trout, and I, and I use that as leverage to talk to you, Todd, and I say, Collette says he'll give me Mike Trout, what will you give me that's better than that? There's a tactical disadvantage, which is first, now you know Mike Trout might be available and you might go beat me to the punch on Mike Trout. And the second thing is, Jason Collette might have told you that Trout's not available and now I've made him a liar uh, insofar <laughs> yeah. as your, your relationship with him and now you can't trust right. him and it's not my place, I don't think ethically, to turn another player in my league into uh, somebody not to be trusted by a third player in my league. So I just... On balance, I can't imagine that I would do it unless I had the permission of the person who had made the original deal to reveal it to other people, which somebody might do just to let the word get out, I guess. Uh, another question you had, and this one also very interesting, and I think I was in a very small minority on this one. You asked if there are any circumstances that could trigger a rules change after the draft had taken place, and if so, what would the best process be to enact such a change? And I, like I said, I was in the small minority on this. Right, and I'll let you know. You can, obviously, you can uh, share, share your opinion, but I think the Pavlovian knee-jerk response is – you shall never change a rule after the season begins. You know, let's be struck by lightning, right? I think that's, and I think there was there was some people that responded in that way, and there were also some people that said it would take grave. I use the word grave because that's not that that has wrong implications. It would take very unique circumstances to make it happen, such as I don't know a pandemic maybe, and there were some rule changes, need more IL spots, et cetera, et cetera. Last year, um, the I don't irony is not the word, but the the funny part about this question again, this is one that came about because of a personal situation, and it wasn't even it wasn't even COVID related. I actually, it, it's uh, I can say uh, Chris won't get mine. Chris won't mind. Chris Olson, commissioner of a local Boston league, we had this scenario. There was a rule change enacted to begin the season, where we uh, put off trading until the transaction the transaction period. Oh, until May 1st, until May 1st, uh, primarily to, to, to defray some of the early dumps. The league felt, you know, it was the, the dumping was too early. So in May 1st, I believe, is uh, uh, Friday or Saturday this year, maybe a, I think a Saturday. So we were allowed to make trades on May 1st that would go into effect on May 3rd, the Monday. Now, the part, the, the, the tricky part is this has been a longstanding rule that you don't get draft picks to trade until the transition period after May 1st. So that in this case would have been May 3rd. So you made a trade on May 1st, you could not include future draft picks. And some people were saying, ah, oh, come on, let's just, what's, what's the harm? Let's just relax that rule and allow draft picks to be traded with the first wave of trades. And people, no, you can't do that. It's, you know, and, and so this is what, you know, because in my head I'm saying, 
Well, you know, wh- why not? It didn't affect anybody's draft. It didn't affect keepers. It, it's really, it, it's a, it was an oversight. You know, somebody should have realized, and we should have either said you can't have trades until May third, or to get the draft picks early. It just we happened as a league, we missed it. You know, whatever. Um, but league's a bunch of lawyers, uh, so therefore, therefore, logic doesn't work. Um, and you know, we just it, so to so me, it was just one of those. Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, this is it's just such an innocent question, but they were saying, you know, pounding the desk. You can't change a rule after the fact. My, my, you know, what I said was personally, I said, you know what? I mean, I see no problem with it. Just be aware, you're opening up Pandora's box, and you're now kind of allowing any rule to be discussed. And while this one is pretty clear that it doesn't affect the draft or whatever, you know, as long as we're discussing a rule, I mean, another rule may change that did affect the draft. And which is better to not even discuss it and by, go by the rule or take a chance that it gets up in the future and, you know, a bad rule change is enacted. So I'm not even sure where we are. But the point being, it's just I begin to wonder, you know, I wonder what everybody thinks about this. And to be honest, Tell Wars had to deal with this. And in, in, in that, and you, you were familiar with this because, unfortunately, you're one of the pr- people that were negatively hurt by this. But the the all the IL designations at the beginning of the season, a lot of them didn't didn't get uh, didn't get publicly known until very very late, and we weren't able to capture them. And a lot of people went into the first transaction period that Thursday. With a with a when unable to make moves that they wanted to make because their player wasn't put in the DL. I had Zach Gallen, who you know was hurt months ago, if you will, and I couldn't. I had to keep him on my roster because our you know our rule says that you, it has to be flagged by the site in order for a bit to to move him, and he wasn't flagged. So we said, all right, you know what? Let's just relax that, and let's just. Let's just uh, be smart about it. Let the let the SWATs manually move players that we know are hurt until he did the DL so we don't have to drop really good players or drop not so much really good, but drop reasonable DL only. I guess everybody's really good and you know, as far as the reserve. And but the problem is there that's something that could have affected fab bidding the previous week. Because if the if someone had known that they would be, you know, something may not have been on as many players figuring they, they may have to drop someone they don't want to drop to make room. If they had known that all these players would put in the DL, maybe they would have been on more players. So this is a rule that would have affected something that went on in the league. So even though we announced, you know what, we're going to be nice and relax it. We then had to take that, apologize. We made a mistake by saying that. Now, we've already started discussing. I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. Uh, you know, we mentioned the board before. We're already think, we're already talking about how to change this so that the SWATs can do it. But, of course, we'll let everybody know. I know we didn't let you know about the innings minimum, but we'll let everybody know. And, it's you know, Steve Gardner of Labor does this. But anyway, so the point being, I was just curious. Whatever, you know, what, what kind of a ruckus would it cause uh, or I'll use the word correctly as opposed to half the announcers. What kind of a scuffle in the league? Uh, scuffle does not mean struggle, people. does not mean the player's not hitting well. It's, uh, it's the same as kerfluffle. And I've never heard that this person is kerfluffling at the plate. Have you? Yeah, anyway. Not. <laughs> <laughs> be kind of funny. But anyway, um, pet peeve. But, yeah, so now you said that, you know, you, you said you had a little bit of a a contrary answer. What I, I know, you know, let, tell, tell the folks what you wrote. 
Well, I wasn't contrary in, to the extent that I think everybody was pretty agreed on the first part of the question, which is under what circumstances, and everybody said that it would have to be really quite extraordinary and have a deleterious effect on the league. And I, I use the morbid example of what if, you know, two team planes crashed in midair while they were on their way across <laughs> the continent, and all of a sudden, you know, there's this huge thing you have to deal with. And I think the pandemic is actually not a bad example. It's kind of that in slow motion. And for that reason, rules had to be changed and we ex accepted that. My difference with most of the people was most of them said it should be either majority vote of the league, super majority vote of the league. And a lot of people said a unanimous vote of the league. And I, I said, I think it should be just a, a, a dictatorly fiat issued by the board or by the commissioner or whoever, as long as that commissioner is not a member of the league, saying what's good for the league. And the reason I said that was because I've been in a lot of leagues, especially home leagues, where every vote starts with people thinking about their own team's interest rather than the league's interest. Right. Well, you, you, may, you may, not, may or may not have read my uh, actually, this isn't posted yet. It'll be up tomorrow. But that's what I, I said. You know, everybody's saying unanimous. That's my problem is that every question gets answered for the good of the team, not for the good of the league. So you're not, you're not going to get unanimous vote on most things because it hurts their team at that time. Exactly. Right. right. Um, yeah. You know, the league I was talking about, it may just be, you know, with the draft picks. Um, you know, someone may have no intention of trading draft picks. So therefore, you know, the fewer number of weeks that other people can trade theirs, you know, you know, whatever it might be, that's kind of a trite example. But yeah, so and, and to me, in general, I think too many votes are for the good of the team, not for the good of the league. And it's kind of hard to separate them, especially if it's a league where there's some jelly beans on the line. But I do think for the greater good, for the for the league to persist. You do have to do most changes for the good of the league. I mean, I've had changes where my I built up a farm system, and I know that the price, you know, the, the pricing wasn't so good. I mean, or or, or the salaries were too high, and whatever. I mean, and, and and you know, they they had started their contract, and the next year we lowered the initial price of minor leaguers, and yeah, that crushed me because I would have had five players with lower prices, but I also know. For the league, it's better that way. It's better to re for rebuilding in general if the minor league started a lower contract. So, yeah, I was upset about the fact that I was a year too early or a year too late, whatever it might have been. But I also realized that it's better for the league from a commissioner's standpoint trying to find new people to join because people quit because they, they're sick of donating every year and they can't build up a good team, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I I don't know about the the dictatorship, but you know whatever. But I don't know that I'm going to need a unanimous decision. Now, Tout Wars is easy; you convince the board. But there's not many leagues that are run by a board. No, but there are some leagues where the owners realize that they can't have one of their own be the commissioner because, again, unless the person's unusually big-hearted and uh, fair-minded, they're running teams in the league too, and they're bound to think, oh my gosh, if this rule change goes through, this is going to kill my chances this year, therefore I'm going to try, I'm probably less inclined to go along with it. And that's just human nature, and I don't think there's anything you can do about it, which is why I would recommend to all those home leagues out there, especially if you've got some lawyers, involved 
uh, <laughs> go and hire a oh, commissioner yeah. service for you know fifty bucks or a hundred bucks or whatever it costs, and have these decisions made for you by a neutral third party because I think that's the best way to run it. Now these tout table questions are accessible to the public. Todd, uh, how do interested listeners sign up or go see these? Can is there a newsletter approach or an email they can send in? How does it work? Uh, unfortunately, none of that yet. Or uh, basically, we hope to make it easier than that. Well, not so much easier. But uh, toutwars.com, T-O-T-O-U-T-W-A-R-S.com, toutwars.com. Um, I, I don't even – I try to post them on Friday, so I'd like to say every Friday. If you're on Twitter, the, the best way the, – the newsletter the, – the proxy for the newsletter is follow Tout Wars on Twitter. And whenever they're posted, the, um, the alert goes out. The, the touts all then will retweet it. So if you follow some touts – you can often see it. Um, so th- that's that's the major way is using social media, primarily Twitter, to find out. But if you just go to toutwars.com, it'll be on the homepage. And like like PD says, you know, it, it, if you send a question, don't make it so so particular that it, you know that you know. But if you if you if you have a more of a general question, it may not be on a player, maybe on a type of player. You know, tag me on on Twitter. You never know. Maybe we can have a uh, a guest submission as the uh, as, as as an upcoming Tout Wars question at Tout Wars or at Todd Zola. Maybe uh, tag both that way. You make sure to get yeah. I, right I, I have a. They give me the keys to the Tout Wars social media too. So yeah, either one is fine. How often does the Tout Table come out? I like to make it every week, but I won't lie. There's something. Sometimes stuff happens. I forget. Uh, something comes up. So it's it's almost it's almost every week. It should be every week, but I'm not going to lie, and because uh, I will miss one here and there, something comes up. Try not to, try not to. Uh, but thus far, uh, we look for it once a week. And I'll be honest, I think, I mean, I think I've talked to Peter about this, Peter Kreutzer. Some of these more general topics, the kind of evergreen, I think we can make. I mean, put them in a PDF. I mean, I think there's some good stuff. Yeah. In uh, in some of these things, and it's evergreen. And is it the same day every week when it? The week's I try to try to make it Friday. Okay. Uh, I, I do. I do try to make it Friday, and we've gotten some real. I mean, some a lot of. I mean, 30, 40, 50 people uh, replying. So grab a snack. These these are these are fairly uh, fairly long. You know, I know nowadays it's twelve hundred words in out get you know move on, but some of the, you know you get 30, 40, 50 people sharing their opinion. Um, you know, it's a you know get a get a drink. You know, buckle up and uh, enjoy the ride. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola for Masters Ball, ESPN, Roto-Wire, Sirius XM, and various podcasts out there. And Todd, uh, you're the guinea pig. You're the first banana, whatever you want to call it. The, you're the first guy to, to do the uh, replacement section that we are using in place of Boons and Banes, which has had a long and glorious career here at Baseball HQ Radio. But my idea was we're going to try to get our experts to provide information that's going to be actionable for the fab period coming up at the end of this week of the podcast. And uh, in honor of the tradition of rhyming and silly names, we're calling this Slumps, Dumps, Pumps, and Jumps. And slumps are players performing poorly who should maybe be stashed because it's just a slump. Dumps are guys who are performing poorly that should be dumped. Uh, pumps are guys playing well but not for real and should be sold high. And then jumps are guys you want to jump at in fab. So let's start with your slump. Uh, Todd, this is a player performing poorly who you think is undeserving of his poor performance and should be hung on to. 
Uh, it's it, it. I would have had a better argument if he didn't just go four for four. I think fairly recently, but I I, I like what I'm seeing out of Nick Senzel. Nick Senzel. Um, I know strikeouts and walks aren't everything, and they mean less than they did in previous seasons. But he's showing the really really good plate skills, hitting the ball well. A um, little bit injured with Cincinnati there. Uh, I think that he's someone that, and he's on that, you know, in a 12-team mixed, he's on that fringe line where it's not out, outlandish to drop him. I think he's going to come around. And your dump, a player performing poorly who really should <sighs> be off your roster. Man, I, I don't know that. I don't, I don't, I honestly, I have trouble with this one just because I don't think you really need to dump anybody this early, but in a 10 or 12 team league, uh, so I go to, do I go to police act again? I know I've been pounding that. I'm, he was my, he was my bust coming into the air. And I don't know that you should drop Zach police act, but I'm concerned. I want to see, I want to see, you know what? I'm not going to use police act. I'm going to use the guy that I was pounding Brad Keller. Um, if you listen to me and you picked up Brad Keller, I apologize. You can drop Brad Keller. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about a pump? This is a player performing well who is not for real and should be sold high while you can pump the pump the money out of the out of the trade market. Uh, I think Cable Deuce already kind of you know come, come come down a bit. Um, gonna go with is Adolis Garcia too too generic or or too. Granular. I'm going to go with Dolos Garcia. I know he, we're, we're rationalizing. Okay, he's got the opportunity. He. I'm talking about the Texas center fielder now. Um, I think he's. I think a, a bit over his head, and I don't know that that Leodos Tavares will get another shot. But I think we're we're looking for a reason, and we're saying, well, he's got the chance. I want to look at more than he's got the chance. So I'm going to go with the Dolos Garcia. And uh, Adolis Garcia, Ray and I talked about him earlier, and I think we d- we agreed with you on that. Uh, oh, well, maybe uh, I could come up with another name in the meantime. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, the fact that we're all on the same page fills me full of confidence. Uh, on the jumps, who's a fabulous free agent hitter that should be targeted this weekend if he's on your list? Yeah, you know what? Is it, I don't think it's cheating because I think that you're going to find this every week that you ask your guests. You know, there's going to be the right time, the right place. And right now, Mike Talkman is the right time, right place, right? Just traded to San Francisco. I know it's not the greatest park, but he's going to get playing time with uh, Mike Yastrzemski injured. And, you know, coming from the Yankees, uh, obviously, uh, even with the injuries, he wasn't seeing as much playing time. Good hitter. Uh, remind, you know, to me, he's like the Yastrzemski and Alex Dickerson type. They're all pretty good. They just, you know, somewhat bound by the park. But I would, uh, to me, I, he's going to be a popular choice, but he's, he's the guy I'll name. And how about a fabulous free agent pitcher? Uh, you know, showing my Red Sox colored glasses here, I'm afraid. But um, I think I saw enough of Garrett Richards last time, and we kind of talked a little bit about what the Red Sox staff is doing, that I, I, he probably was pretty popular to coming into the air. Then people may have soured and, and dropped him, and I think he may be available again. What I noticed specifically, and they were talking about it on the broadcast too, but if I notice it, I think, you know, I, I think it, it, it's, I, I think it's, an, I mean, they didn't have to tell me. It was so obvious that I noticed it too, is what I'm saying, is he was much more deliberate in his motion and not between pitches. He would still work quickly, but he slowed down the motion and just the command and control 
jumped up. And maybe it's just one start, you know, who knows? But as everybody's going to tell us, because it's true nowadays, you need something. And I already stability, stability points aren't the thing. We're going to find something else, right? So I, I, you got to, is it a new pitch? And for me, I, I'm more comfortable making that choice with pitchers than I am with hitters, just because you can say he's throwing a new pitch, he's getting more spin. Uh, you know, he's, he's different distribution of pitches. Uh, I, I think get Richards looked really comfortable. So if he was let go uh, recently because he had a, a few poor outings, I think he's ready. And he was healthy most of last year. I, I, yeah, every pitcher's concerned health-wise, and especially Garrett Richards. But I, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm jumping on the bandwagon again. When I heard you say you were going to be a bit of a homer on this one, I thought for sure you were going to mention Garrett Whitlock, who's a free agent in a lot of leagues and certainly has showed some terrific skills so far this year. 12 strikeouts per nine and barely over a walk per nine. Maybe starting to work his way into some higher leverage situations, might vulture you some wins. I like Garrett Whitlock a lot. Yeah, and uh, I write the ESPN Daily Notes, and we're supposed to write a, well, not supposed to, we write a bullpen section. And uh, one of the things I talked about for, 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 for Friday's note, for today's notes, was um, using K minus BB percent as a filter, and he shows up really high. And sometimes you have to throw him out the window. Other times you need to use that as a, a way to dig deeper. And I agree. He's already being used, Whitlock. We talked about Barnes and Adovino. He's already being used in the bridge to get to the, uh, to the ninth, so he's going to get some holds. But he's a potential starter, too. And sure, maybe it'll take being sent down to get stretched out again or a tandem role where he uses up two or three innings originally. But I think this is an, it's an arm. It's an arm you want and you let the role take care of itself. And I'm becoming increasingly more confident that the Red Sox are in those, you know, handful of teams where you trust that they'll do that. You know, I think that Tampa's there. Uh, there's just there are some teams where you just you know, appeal to authority and and trust that they'll find the, the the way to put their players in the best position to succeed. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN, and broadcasts on Sirius XM Radio and appears on lots of podcasts. We'll take a quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, and Frequent Flyer coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd buy me some peanuts and cracker jack i don't care if i never get back let me root 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 for the home team if they don't win it's a shame for it's one two three strikes you're out at the old ball game Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer coming up and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Detroit corner infield prospect Spencer Torkelson is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. With the 2021 Minor League season set to begin on Tuesday, May 4th, we finally turn our attention away from the 2021 MLB draft and back towards some of the top prospects still in the minors. 
One player who is sure to draw a lot of attention from fantasy managers and prospect aficionados is the Tigers' Spencer Torkelson. Over the past four seasons, the Tigers have arguably been the worst team in baseball, going 199 and 346 for a 365 winning percentage, and the team is in the midst of a multi year rebuild. The only positive of that four year stretch of ineptitude is that the club has been able to land a number of impact prospects in Casey Mize, who went number one overall in the 2018 draft, Riley Green, who went number five in the 2019 draft, and Torkelson, who was the first overall pick in the 2020 draft. Heading into the draft, Torkelson was the consensus top pick, and many scouts considered him one of the more advanced collegiate hitters in the past five years. In three years at Arizona State, Torkelson slashed 337 with a 463 on base percentage and a 729 slugging percentage with 54 home runs and 498 at bats and more walks than strikeouts. Because of the pandemic, Torkelson has yet to make his minor league debut, though he did spend the 2020 season at the Tigers' alternate training site, where he impressed the Tigers' staff with his maturity and advanced understanding of the strike zone. It will be interesting to see how the long layoff impacts Torkelson and other top prospects, and with Torkelson, there is at least some cause for concern. The 21-year-old received an invitation to spring training, where he looked completely overmatched, going 1-for-27 with 16 strikeouts. Given those struggles, the Tigers announced that Torkelson will start the 2021 season at High A West Michigan, where he'll work on regaining his timing and confidence. At this point, it is way too early to hit the panic button, and Torkelson still has the tools to be a middle-of-the-order hitter with plus power and the ability to hit for average and a high on-base percentage. Defensively, the Tigers are experimenting with Torkelson at third base, but his range, quickness, and arm strength make it unlikely that he will stick at the hot corner. With Miguel Cabrera on the downside of his career, the Tigers have no obvious long-term replacements at first base, making it likely that Torkelson will move across the diamond to his natural position at first base. Long-term, Spencer Torkelson has the tools to be a 300, 400, 500 hitter, and along with Casey Mize, Matt Manning, Tariq Skubal, and Riley Green, form the cornerstone of the Tigers' rebuilding efforts, and all five players should be in the majors by mid to late 2022. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ Scouting Team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting, this week at BaseballHQ.com, check the daily call-ups reports. Looking at recent call-ups to the major leagues, including top Colorado right-hander Justin Lawrence, Tampa left-hander Shane McClanahan looked pretty good the other night, and the Yankees right-hander Davey Garcia as well. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Washington right-handed pitcher Austin Voth is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. One player who has caught the attention of a large number of touts is Austin Voth, according to the February 26, 2021 edition of Playing Time Tomorrow on BaseballHQ.com. The February 26th edition of Playing Time Tomorrow goes on to say that returning readers will recall our own cautiously optimistic assessment in this space of Austin Voth's chances as he was called up to the team in 2019. Additionally, Playing Time Tomorrow wisely pointed out that at 92.8 miles per hour, Austin Voth's fastball doesn't stand out. But what does stand out is that Austin Voth added a tick and a half to it from 2018 to 2019. 
Even so, Austin both posted an ugly 634 ERA in 11 starts with the Washington Nationals in 2020. That's why 28-year-old Washington Nationals right-hander Austin Voth, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Yet despite Austin Voth's ugly 634 ERA at 11 starts in 2020, here's a few reasons to be cautiously optimistic in 2021. As previously established in Plague Time Tomorrow, Austin Voth added a tick and a half to his fastball from 2018 to 2019. More specifically, Austin Voth added approximately 1.4 miles per hour on his four-seam fastball between 2018 and 2019, according to MLB StatCast. However, MLB StatCast also shows that Austin Voth lost 1.6 miles per hour on his four-seam fastball between 2019 and 2020, effectively erasing his velocity gains from 2018 to 2019 and perhaps resulting in his ugly 634 ERA in 2020. Yet, according to Playing Time Tomorrow on BaseballHQ.com, Austin Voth is one player who has caught the attention of a large number of touts. Why? The velocity is back. According to MLB StatCast, Austin Voth has increased his four-seam fastball velocity by 2.2 miles per hour in 2021. Not only that, but Austin Voth has also improved his velocity on his cutter by a whopping 4.3 miles per hour and dialed up his split-finger fastball by 2.2 miles per hour in 2021, again referencing MLB StatCast. Plus, he's even reduced the velocity of his curveball by about 2 miles per hour, and that's a good thing. The result? Austin Voth has posted a sizzling 208 ERA through his first six games of 2021. Thus, maybe now, 28-year-old Washington Nationals right-hander Austin Voth has your attention, too. It's our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 30th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 22 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our feature guest expert for this Friday full edition, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, Sirius XM. Todd is a great longtime friend of this podcast and a first-rate fantasy baseball analyst and writer. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Abbott, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That helps us find new listeners, and that in turn helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.